2: good in my life? Two, two, twice. This raise today and dance. Dance at the disco. Dance, dance, yeah. I mean, like a with you, but, you know, you're not my dream girl. Nothing like that. Are
3: you as good in bed as y'all
2: in that dance floor? those are you you make it with some of these chicks? They think you got to dance with them. He's very good, yeah. Huh? He's the best. Hey man, he's great. He's the king out there. John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever. She can dance, you know that? She's got the wrong partner, of course, but she can dance. Okay, listen. I like it. We could dance together. That's it. We
3: could just dance together and uh, nothing more, nothing crazy
2: Listen, it can't last forever, it's it's a short-lived kind of thing, but I'm getting older, you know, and, you know, I feel like, I feel like, you know, so what, I'm getting older, does that mean like I can't feel that way about nothing left in my life, you know, (laughs) is that it?
4: From Paramount Pictures. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rob St. Mary.
1: Just do me a favor. Don't touch the
4: hair, all right? Also with us this week is filmmaker Mark Christopher. I spend a lot of time on my hair and he touches my hair. This week we're lacing up our boogie shoes and looking at the 1977 film from director John Badham, Saturday Night Fever. The film tells the story of Tony Manero, played by John Travolta, a disaffected young man in Brooklyn who dreams of something bigger. He's got a fairly dysfunctional family life, a dead-end job at a paint store, and not a lot of education. The only thing he's really got going for himself is that he can disco dance, and oh boy, can he dance. I love to watch you dance, Tony. Yeah?
3: I love it. I love to watch you dance. But I, I, I just, just love it.
4: Before we get too far into things this week, I want to say that we are going to be getting into spoiler territory for Saturday Night Fever and its sequel, Staying Live and Marks Film 54. If you've not seen Saturday Night Fever and don't want us to spoil anything for you, go ahead and turn off the podcast and go watch it. We will be here waiting for you. Now, that said, Mark, when was the first time that you saw Saturday Night Fever, and what did you think?
5: You know what's strange about that? The thing is, I heard the soundtrack first, and that's my big memory because I was in high school. It was at my—or maybe even junior high. It was in my cousin's garage on a farm in Iowa, and he put that record on a turntable, and I was— In love. (laughs) And then it took about 20 years for me to actually see the movie. I think I saw the movie in the 90s, believe it or not, and then fell in love all over again.
1: I probably saw it years and years ago and totally forgot that it is, as uh, I told you when we did this, uh, we're planning this episode. I think people think that Saturday Night Fever is this frothy little time capsule of disco, and it's not quite as dark and has all the different things that are going on in it, which make it uh, a great film of the 70s. And um, so when I rewatched it about a year ago, I was like, wow, I don't remember any of this. So my memory was pretty bad. So um, I've seen it a couple of times since, and I have to say, it's uh, it's deserving of the title, you know, masterpiece of the 70s kind of thing and that whole era of film that, you know, both of us really love. Like I said, I'm I'm still a little confused that people think that it's, you know, this light and frothy little thing for some reason, I think, in the pop culture. So this is what's uh, w- what
5: was so interesting for me. When I saw the movie, I had the exact same reaction. It is a dark, fantastic movie from the second golden age of Hollywood. It's very much a 70s smart, deep, thematic, beautiful character drama. It's absolutely beautiful. But, you know, the disco scenes are kind of tacky and dorky, you know, when you see it for the first time in the 90s. So when I was doing research for 54, I remember going back and reading all the old magazines of the day because, I, you know, this was before the Internet. So in order to get the jargon of the day and whatnot um, and do je- research in general – I had to go back and read old magazines. And in doing this, I read reviews of Saturday Night Fever, and they criticized the movie as a big cliche, but that the disco scenes were absolutely oh. fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> so things almost completely reversed. And now, just watching the movie again today, they've almost reversed again because. The, the 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 tackiness of those disco scenes is, is super enjoyable. So I got to say, I love them now.
4: I guess kind of like you, Mark. I grew up with a lot of the music. I remember my cousins having a forty-five of Jive talking, and I absolutely loved it. And I'd love the little like what is the, the the logo for the the record label? Is like that little bull character and stuff. And I'd be like, oh yeah, put that one on. Like before I could even read, I just remember that cartoon character and 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 like you know put this on the turntable i love this song yeah i didn't it's s- the r i think it's a rhino isn't it rso isn't that a rhino it's some weird
6: animal yeah <laughs>
1: <laughs> robert Stigwood's label because he um he put out uh i remember when i was a kid seeing that because my dad had uh solo 1970s solo era uh, air clapton albums that were on rso as well I believe
5: this is the first movie it was done on, but I'm almost positive if if it wasn't this movie, it was Stigwood who did it either with this or with Grease. He released the soundtrack before the movie, so that was a new invention, and so it kind of makes sense that I saw saw, saw it first. Also, there was no way to see the movie on a farm in Iowa, but...
4: I want to say yeah definitely release the soundtrack and release the single for More Than a Woman beforehand. So that's why that's kind of like the pinnacle moment for the film is More Than a Woman because they didn't even re- release Sting Live as a single beforehand which was kind of interesting because that's the song that we go back to now the, you know in the the I can't say the title song but the title song for the sequel but the opening credit song which is just blows me away. I saw this film for the first time, finally. Gosh, it was probably, kind of like you, Mark, I saw it probably early 90s, back when uh, they were doing a lot of um, student-run film screenings at University of Michigan, and I saw this on a Saturday night, and I... Just the whole audience was so revved up for this thing. And when that opening comes on and he's carrying that paint can down the street and you got that music going and all those crazy angles and everything, we were just enthralled. And this was going to be fantastic. And it starts off, as you were saying, and I think the word tacky is right, it starts off so tacky with so many, like, just strange things going on in the the whole opening disco scene and everything, and we're still just cheering and cheering. And by the end of it, man, I mean, we were just... Like somebody punched us in the gut. It was like, oh, my God, I didn't realize how dark this movie was <laughs> because it just goes to some strange places. Well, let me tell you, um, you know,
5: I'm glad you gave the spoiler alert because this is a movie, you know, that ends in a gang date rape and a semi-suicide. <laughs> so it's a dark piece of filmmaking.
4: Tony Manero is he wants to do good but he really doesn't necessarily know how. I mean just he's got this shitty family. He's got, you know, he's basically he's racist, homophobic, doesn't know how to treat women, has nothing going for him, he's not very smart guy. And I love that, you know, doing research on this it was when they had another director for before Badham he came in and he was like, oh, well, we got to mellow this character out. And Travolta's like, no, 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 no. I want to play this like it was written. I want to be this guy. Because the way that it was going to happen, they wanted to make Tony into the friendly guy who does favors for everybody around the neighborhood kind of thing. And he's not that guy. He's very – he's just out for himself, which I really kind of appreciate.
5: Right. And then you cast a movie star who's that beautiful and has those beautiful eyes and is so incredibly vulnerable. I got to tell you, I was a little disappointed by just watching it um, now because they have done, you know, a remastering and it's HD and it's just way too freaking bright. It's a little sad, like especially in the subway scene when he's uh, going to see Stephanie at the end. That should be dark, almost, you know, that green fluorescent thing that the magic is created when you hear how deep is your love come up. Instead, it's kind of lit up like noon, you know what I mean? So it's kind of a bummer. But the good side of this of this HD thing is his those beautiful sparkling blue eyes, and it even you know you can not, you love Tony Monero already, but it adds even something more
1: for me. Just the character and sort of the community that that he's around. I know there's a big difference between sort of working class Brooklyn and you know East Side factory ranch suburbs of Detroit, but I sort of saw a lot of if not myself, like the kids I grew up around in in that neighborhood, because it was a lot of the same thing. It's just working class, blue collar folks, you know, and they're hung up on all of these things that they're not together enough to figure out. Like, I mean, I heard racist stuff, you know, in my family when I was growing up, you know, from my extended family and the kids I went to school with and, and all that. So, so as I was watching this, I'm like, it's fascinating to see really sort of, blue-collar honest blue-collar uh life depicted in a film in that way because a lot of times it seems that filmmakers kind of shy away from that you you get sort of this you know abject poverty the people that are at the real bottom and then you get sort of this uh professional class and up in film but you don't really see sort of the day-to-day laborers and sort of what their their life is like
5: well you know that's true and and i have to Tell you that's why I think the movie was such a sensation because I grew up working class as well. I don't know if you guys know the, this little bit of history of disco, but if I may, you know, so disco, depending on, you know, did it start in the 60s in, in Paris, you know, exactly where did it start, but it was really coming to a head in the sort of mid 70s. And then it was on the downswing until this movie came out. And this because it was disco was for black people, Latinos and gay people in cities. And this movie, and I think it's just what you're saying, Rob, it's because of the working class aspect. So it could appeal to the whole country and the
1: whole world. It made disco enormous. I'm not old enough to remember the anti-disco stuff, but my uncles would talk about how there were like these anti-disco groups and like rockers in Detroit had like these like these fan club cards like we're anti-disco and all this stuff because disco as you said represented all of this stuff that they didn't like in the first place. Like they couldn't relate to gays, they couldn't relate to other minorities. They were just working-class sl- slobs and they wanted to listen to their Aerosmith albums.
5: That's absolutely correct. Disco sucks was really a euphemism for um, I hate all those fringe groups. Yep, that's absolutely what it was. And Disco Sucks came about 1980. So, you know, a disco blew up after Saturday Night Fever because of this working class thing. But then you're right. It was a working class people again that came in to say, you know, we think this sucks. And what's also amazing, I don't know if you guys remember this, but disco wasn't just music. It wasn't just the discos themselves. It was the clothing. It was board games. It was like everything. It was like we haven't had any kind of crazy pop culture mania like that since.
4: Yeah, we. I mean, we've seen the culture kind of fracture since then, and it just continues to do that. But it's always interesting to me that it seemed like John Travolta was the one who was on the forefront of these things. You know, he's there was a, a club in the town that I grew up in, and it was a disco for a while. And then it turned into like a honky-tonk with the uh, mechanical bull and stuff. And I was like, whoa, well, there's Urban Cowboy. <laughs> and then I'm just surprised that it didn't turn into a um, uh, an aerobic center, you know, and be like, oh, perfect, you know. Like, is John Travolta leading the way all the way through?
5: Well, the aerobics movie didn't do well, did it?
4: No, no, it yeah. did not. So let's talk a little bit more about the plot of the film, because we've talked a little bit, you know, begins, well, really begins with the shot of the Brooklyn Bridge. And we're going to be talking about the bridge a lot throughout this film. Or is it Brooklyn or is it the, you no, know, it's the Verrazano Bridge, right? Um,
5: you know, it starts probably with the Williamsburg Bridge. I'm not sure, but the, you would if you were in um if you were in uh Bay Ridge, you'd take the Williamsburg Bridge into Manhattan. So don't I think they go across from Manhattan, probably across the Williamsburg Bridge to Brooklyn, um or could it could be the Brooklyn Bridge or the Manhattan Bridge. All three of them go to go to Brooklyn, so
4: the bridge is just such a symbol in this movie, this whole idea of escaping from Brooklyn and getting out of Brooklyn. And what can Tony do to get out of Brooklyn? And there's a character in there and we'll talk a lot about her, Stephanie, who has gotten out of Brooklyn, albeit through, you know, kind of questionable means. And she's not really even happy about it herself, but the whole idea of getting out of Brooklyn and we start with Tony strutting down the street doing his thing and has his can of paint and everything we start with him at his paint store and we see that he's got a really good rapport with all the customers he's doing very well his boss likes him Things are okay there, but when he comes home, his home life is really the first kind of sign that we have that things maybe aren't so peachy in Tony's world. This whole idea, his dad is out of work, he's got this uh, little sister, he's got his grandmother there, this extended family idea, this you know old Italian family. His dad n- never says anything good to him at all. His mom has really not that much use for Tony. She's all just completely about his brother, Frank Jr. And of course, you know, I'm just crossing myself over here because Frank Jr. is a priest. He is, or he's going to be a priest. He's at the seminary. She thinks the world of Father Frank Jr., but not so much about tony and tony really the only thing that he has going for him is this whole idea of getting dressed up and going out to the disco with his friends this group of guys i think there's uh, altogether five guys and they call themselves the faces and them going into the disco i mean it's like moses crossing the the red sea just everybody parts they come in and it's like now the party can start
5: He's not just great at the disco. He's very good at his little working class job in the paint store. So there are two times in his life that uh, anyone has ever told him he was any good.
2: You know how many times somebody told me I was good in my life? Two. Two. Twice. Two fucking times. Just raised today and danced and at the disco. He sure as fuck never did.
4: Asshole. I'm very surprised that he even calls his father an asshole at this point. It's like, really? I love that. I love that. That's fantastic.
1: I was trying to figure out sort of the age because obviously Travolta is a bit older than I think the character is supposed to be. And I think the character is like 19 to 21, somewhere in that range.
4: 19, yeah.
1: And one of the things that I could really relate to, and I think anyone who remembers their teenage years can relate to, is him basically putting the music on and then getting himself ready to go out. And there's this whole sort of like ritual aspect to it. You you get this idea, you know, it's like, he's got to do this. And he puts the chains on and he's doing the hair and all that. Well, I was not, you know, a, a strutting peacock like Tony Manero in my youth. There's just something about going in your room, putting on the music and like connecting in that way. And it was like, it's just such a... You know, it's, it's just part of your youth in that way. And, and I think that that's a, another aspect of it that why it holds up is that you could show this to a teenage kid today and they go, oh, yeah, I totally get that. But it would be my iPod or something, you know, instead of big vinyl records. We have to talk about Karen Lynn Gorney at a certain point because she was in
5: 54, and she gave me a lot of inside stories about things I'll try to remember for you guys. But um, one thing that I, I may have read this and you guys may know this, but in that scene where he's getting ready, right, if you notice, when he opens his closet, it looks like he's holding his breath it's this weird, weird thing. Oh, I know how I know this because I read the original script and I I can't remember if the original script was called Saturday Night Fever or or The Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night but I, I, I read the paper script. I got it out of the library at graduate school and I read it and a couple of, you know, obviously not everything ends up in the movie and one of the things was that this character used to hold his breath and see how long he could hold it but they cut that out of the film and so you have these strange shots of Tony getting ready where he looks like he's holding his breath because he is. The other thing that's really important, and this is about the relationship with the mother, and it's it's so sad, like he has absolutely no relationship with his mother in the movie. It's it's kind of freaky. But in the script, he he has a really interesting one. He takes her to church. And if I remember right, there are even church scenes, and they're really cool, and it really it it gives him even more character. But you know, obviously, I don't know if the scenes didn 't work, or if they cut them before shooting, but that that was something very interesting also that didn 't make it to the
4: screen yeah, and they even make reference to that scene because she you know, asked them to take him to church to take yeah. her to church to make God into a telephone operator that doesn't necessarily happen on screen. There's a couple other scenes, and it's kind of weird reading about this. uh, the movie. It seems that when it showed on AMC that they added some scenes in there that maybe are on the DVD, but maybe not. The version that I saw watching it for this podcast was the same version I think I saw back in 91, 92. And apparently, there's other stuff that's out there. They've kind of re-added some deleted scenes, but it's still not everything. You know, th- I read that same script, and yeah, there's uh, it's still stuff that isn't in there. And then, you know, this goes back to the original short story that this was based on. This. 20 page thing that was in like, uh, I think the New Yorker and yeah, his father is out of the picture and that, and his father's in jail and it is all about him and his mom and how much he loves his mom. And so, yeah, it is kind of strange that that relationship just really isn't there when it comes to the movie. And like his, his grandmother is there a little bit, but not very much. And I would think that with this whole idea of the extended family and stuff that we would get a little bit more of that, but really they, they get us out of his house, fairly fast after he does his ritual and then we have the the infamous uh the dinner scene <laughs> with with his hair which that all the whole thing with his hair is all ad-libbed which i didn't realize that you know yes. the, the, there are a lot of great lines in here that are just coming out of you know travolta's mind which i i find very admirable
2: we just washed the hair you know i work on my hair a long time and you, and you hit it he hits my hair
4: and
1: I didn't realize until the second watch that he's like wrapped in a bedsheet because he had yes. already gotten dressed. So the first time I'm watching, I'm like, is that just like a bib or something? I'm like, no, he's actually like mummified
4: kind of, except for his head. You know? <laughs> it looks so great. Yeah. <laughs> and when his sister throws the meatball at him or whatever, it's just like, hey, what are you doing? It just sets off that whole round robin of people slapping each other. <laughs> Because his mom is starting to become a little bit more independent and everything. It's this whole idea that the world is changing. You know, what are you slapping me at dinner? And, you know, you're talking about getting a job. His dad is saying all this stuff. And we kind of, we don't get a whole lot of that stuff. But at least we're getting flavors. And that's one of the things about this movie is that it's just told in these really kind of, you know, more episodic kind of things. And just, I, I like that we don't necessarily get even the beginnings and endings of some scenes. It just feels like we're getting the guts you know there's a lot of stuff especially with his friends where we're just getting like these little kind of snapshots of them and we don't necessarily get the whole thing you know the 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 friends the faces it's like some of them are i don't know n- no offense to the actors or anything but i find them kind of um interchangeable joey and double j and gus like gus is barely there but those three guys to me, they're pretty much the same guy. I don't necessarily get that much of a difference between them. It's really only Bobby C., played by Barry Miller, who seems to be the different character. You know, this little shrimpy guy. And, I mean, almost from the outset, he's talking about his girlfriend. And we have this whole thing of him. Like, we experience his breakdown and his relationship While we're over at 2001 and at the disco and everything, and we don't ever see her, we don't ever get that whole thing, but I like that we get these kind of snapshots as we go throughout the movie of what's going on in his life.
5: It is such a juicy character drama, like... Every character is so distinct and so rich as those great 70s movies are, except for the faces. And I think the faces are sort of meant to be interchangeable, except for, as you said, Bobby C. And and the one face that is not interchangeable to me is Joey, because Joey has such a great face. (laughs) Like, I can't believe that. He has those big choppers, that beautiful, you know, Matt Damon smile And I can't believe that guy didn't work more, you know, maybe he has and I've just missed him. But I loved that face. But I do think that the faces, you know, were probably intentionally meant to be I mean, they were called the faces, you know, that they were meant to, to be interchangeable and to not be separate characters, but to be sort of a conglomeration of a character. And I think, you know, really well
1: done. I also see that in that way, they become sort of the sameness. You get the idea that, you know, there's 10,000 of these guys roaming around Brooklyn.
4: When we get to the disco, because we get a little bit of stuff before the disco, we get them in Bobby C's car, you know, he's kind of the designated driver. He's the only one that owns the car, as far as I know. And they have this whole thing where it's like, Tony is definitely the leader of this group. And we know that right from the get-go and it's kind of funny because he's the guy who leads them into the club and he's really the guy that they're looking to for all this stuff and i never really see the other guys dancing at all he's the only guy they go to this disco every weekend and he's the only guy who's out on the floor it's like okay
5: the, actually the the faces get up and do i don't think bobby does but the other faces get up and do the line dance with him early on
4: but they're not doing that solo stuff man and that's where tony
5: just shines no. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, no, and when Tony has that solo number, it's still friggin' great.
4: You could uh, take this whole disco, this initial disco scene apart, and just you know write, write your term paper on this. Just. All the the relationships that are going on in here, the the way that we have, you know, who's speaking to them, who's not, the way that people are looking at them and all this kind of stuff. We have the introduction of all these different characters at this first dance. We've got – this is where we see Karen Gourney just, you know, off in the distance a little bit, her and her partner, and they're the only ones that can dance to this Latin number. And Tony's really kind of pissed off about this Latin music because it's not – the disco that he wants and then we've got you know that whole thing with um him and doreen this kind of uh i don't know hanger on who uh just loves the way that tony dances and is, oh wiping the sweat across of his brow and everything and they're just like you know that's better than a than a blow job you can't get anybody to do that for you she's just dabbing the sweat off of his brow <laughs>
0: Tony, can I wipe your forehead? I love the way you dance. I just love I, I I love the way you dance.
5: You know, my friends and I used to like quote Doreen for weeks on end.
4: <laughs> for some reason, I used to mash her character and Annette, the uh, Donna Pescal character together, but they are so different. Now when I see it again, I'm just like, oh yeah, no, there's you know, Annette is just so out there so immediately, you know, the whole like, girl of your dreams, yeah, why don't you go home and have a nightmare, and all this kind of stuff. She's just this kind of I don't want to say low-class, but she definitely has that working-class thing that we were talking about. And she wants to be her own person, but she doesn't necessarily know how to do it. And she her self-respect isn't as high as it should be. And I, I love her character, man. She is just amazing to me. Just all the shit that she goes through in this movie. I could have the Annette story, and I'd be just as happy as watching the Tony Manero story. But she is just fantastic yeah
5: i I think the key to annette which makes her so fantastic is that she has balls so even though she's fucked up she's got big balls man and doreen doesn't doreen is a you know doreen's a fan that's it
4: oh yeah i'm so amazed that he gives her
5: a dance why not it's a gift you can tell it's a gift to
4: this young lady who just wiped his sweat (laughs) basically it's like a sympathy fuck but (laughs) out there on the dance floor
1: I grew up around a lot of girls like Annette. They were like my close friends, you know. <laughs> they were just like these brassy chicks who were trying to figure it out, and they would stand up, you know, to people. You, you get a mix from time to time with her that you know she not only has that, but it's like she doesn't want to have to play that role. You, I, at least that's how I feel. Is that sometimes it's like, you know, she wants to not have to be so tough all the time and on guard all the time, and maybe just. Oh, I don't know, have a relationship with Tony who seems completely (laughs) unable to uh, to treat her with respect. And,
5: you know, she she also does have those great lines that are filled with attitude, but she's not very good, you know, so she's trying to be sassy. But she's not very witty. So like that, the thing like, well, then go to sleep and have a nightmare. And the other thing he says to her is then um, she says, you can ask me to sit down. And he says, no, you want to you'll sit. She said, yeah, but you'd ask me to lay down.
4: Her humor is just a little off. (laughs) Yeah, she's one of the boys, but doesn't want to be one of the boys. She's a damn good dancer, too. When she and Tony go out on the floor, that's some good stuff happening.
1: And then I just felt okay. so bad for her because she, uh, he picks her to go along and become uh, his partner for this, for this contest. And then they start working together, and then he basically dumps her as a partner for another girl who he thinks is a better dancer. And there's this, why couldn't you just be honest with someone? Why couldn't, you know, instead of being kind of a rat, <laughs> Tony <laughs> – Well, you know, and this is what's interesting. This might be
5: one of the little flaws in the movie, because Donna Peskow is clearly a better dancer than Karen Lynn Gorney. So when people talk about, when the characters talk about Stephanie being such a great dancer, you're sort of like, what? But not to take anything away from Karen Lynn's performance, because it is so fantastic. It is Filled with surprise. She plays against lines all the time. It's some, there's something so special about that performance. And again, tough, vulnerable, a, a new sort of woman trying to figure out her way who comes through this. And I just think it's such a, a moving and interesting performance.
4: I was really glad that I read the script for this because it really tipped me off a little bit more as far as her speech. And she does this in the movie, but it it really didn't click until I read the screenplay, where she will say something incorrectly and then correct herself, especially when she's saying interesting rather than interesting. And she does that once in the film, and I was just like, oh, okay, there it is. But having not read that, I wouldn't have necessarily picked up on that. And there's this great scene of when she and Tony finally kind of get together, and they've been negotiating a little bit. She thinks that he's just this grease ball who's coming to, you know, pick her up and everything when they're at the dance studio. And, you know, she didn't, really doesn't give a shit about him. He's, she's got her own thing going on, and then finally kind of convinces her, yeah, we'd be good dance partners. They go out and they have coffee, and that scene where she is trying so hard to impress him, and she's so impressed with herself, but you really find out fairly quickly that it's just this smoke screen that she has going up, where she doesn't necessarily even know what's going on, but she has picked up on some of the terminology, she's picked up on the lingo and stuff, you know, she's working in Manhattan, which she's is you know for her is really big shit and working at this agency and Lawrence olivier comes in and she uh, talks about how he called her one of the most uh, vivacious or but she mispronounces vivacious i'm trying to remember
2: well anyway he comes in the office, right so i just do a few errands for him so he goes around he tells everybody in the entire office he says i'm the brightest i'm the most the thing in the entire office
4: he's seen in years you kind of are picking it up but you're not 100% there yet. And it isn't until later on in the film where we really get why she, well, how she is kind of turning into the way that she's turning into, and this whole idea of her trying to put on this new self and get herself out of Brooklyn. Yeah, she's, again, fascinating character in that we have so many of these great characters in one movie i mean nowadays it's like you're lucky if you have a character as interesting as a tony monero and here we have multiple characters where you're just like wow i want to know more about this person and even though stephanie you know she's kind of a bitch sometimes because she doesn't necessarily know how to go about projecting the right self at the right times so she definitely is putting on airs quite a bit but whatever that's her thing she needs to do that in order to move ahead and in order to get across that bridge
5: well what's interesting about her is she is completely selfish but this very, oh, yeah. this very selfish character has these moments where she opens up and she looks at tony and you can just see that vulnerability again you know and and that's what i think she, you know she she Lynn did such a great job you know, with Batam, you know, according to her, if I remember my stories correctly, so they became very close. And when it came time to do ADR, which for those who don't, it's that's additional dialogue recording, uh, or what they call looping. So later in the process, when you need, you know, an extra line here and there, Karen Lynn went into the sound studio with Batam to do a lot of the female lines. So, for instance, when that woman's on the dance floor early on and she says, she's dancing with Tony and she says, kiss me, kiss me. I just kissed Al Pacino. That's Karen Lynn talking. You can tell. Like it doesn't, she didn't even disguise her voice on that one. But you can, you can start to, if you look at the movie like that, you can see looped lines that don't really belong to people. And you can hear Karen under them. And, and I don't know what John Badham, Badham's voice is like, but I, I bet if you did,
4: you could find those as well. And this was her first big role. I mean, this was the one that kind of, you know, her discovery, as it were. She had done other things. She had done TV series, this kind of stuff, a couple of small movie roles. But this was the one, man, where it. she's right there next to Travolta on the poster. And this put her out there. And
5: well-deserved, yep. I'll tell you something also that I forgot until I was watching this, that Bobby C., Barry Miller, actually auditioned for me for the role of Steve Rubell, so that was kind of a fun moment.
4: He was so good in this, and I really only know him from this and from fame, yeah. and then I was looking at his filmography, and I was like, oh shit, he was in Peggy Sue Got Married and just so many other films where I didn't necessarily remember that he was there, but it doesn't seem like he is still acting. It seems like he might have retired a few years ago or something. So I, I really tried to find him, but he's got such a you know fairly generic name, Barry miller Mm -hmm. that it was really tough for me to find any more information about him and yeah like his wikipedia is pretty empty when it comes to that
5: Mm -hmm. really really good actor and i yeah i'd be curious as
4: to when his last credit is because maybe he did stop but you know it's so funny rob like we have covered so many movies with john travolta in it you know and i wouldn't even think
1: (laughs) he's he's almost up there with real don steel it's almost like we you know we we just pick movies that just happen to have a minute usually
4: between this and blowout he fares fairly well you know in our podcast but unfortunately he he didn't come off too unscathed when we did battlefield earth
1: no no not not battlefield earth sorry
4: no so maybe maybe urban cowboy will have to do one of these days or something
1: Grease is a,
5: another brilliant thing. And what a great star reveal when we first see him. I remember, you know, little closet kid with my friends in high school at the drive-in. His introductory shot in the movie is turning around with a cigarette in his mouth, I believe. And you just go, <gasps> I think I literally gasped.
4: (laughs) Our friends over at We Hate Movies just did Look Who's Talking 2. I don't think we'll be covering that one anytime soon on the podcast, though. No. (laughs) We've got the dance contest introduced. We've got John Travolta. We've got Tony Monero, And we've got Stephanie practicing going through their stuff. And throughout this, we also have some other things that are going on. We've got Tony working at the paint store. We've got the, the faces and what they're up to. We've got what I remembered as being a much bigger thing, but it really only lasts for a couple scenes. This whole idea of Frank Jr. Father Frank Jr. quitting the seminary, coming back. And, you know, the family is just devastated by him leaving the seminary. And I, That again, this could have been the movie, could have been this whole relationship with the brothers and all this kind of stuff. And how they, at one point, his mom accuses Tony of saying something to Father Frank Jr. to you know get him to leave the seminary and all this stuff. He is just such the black sheep when it comes to this. And it's really only like two, three scenes, and we don't have a whole lot more. And we get to the the, one of the nice things is that we've already gone to the disco. And then we go back to the disco with Father Frank Jr., and he gets to experience what Tony is experiencing, you know, and being with the faces and all this kind of stuff. Very awkward for the faces. (laughs) They keep calling him Father, and this is really where we get the introduction of, uh, you know, we've we've already had Barry Miller, Bobby C. talking about his girlfriend, and now this is the revelation that his girlfriend is pregnant, and this is going to carry throughout the rest of the film. This whole thing with uh, with Father Frank Jr. coming back in and all this stuff, I mean, like I said, this could have been a movie unto itself. But instead, he's only there for a few more scenes, and then he leaves the film. And I... I- So many great, like, little moments that comprise this film, you know, and just like that whole um, exchange with Father Frank Jr. and with Bobby C. I mean, that is great dialogue and just the way that he immediately knows what's going on and, and, um, you know, just how upset Bobby is. But really, nobody gives a shit. You know, he's amongst friends, quote unquote, but nobody's helping this guy out. Nobody really cares at all about his problems.
5: Well, you know, the thing also about Father Frank Jr.'s story there is that, again, what a a perfect time capsule because it was really capturing what was going on at that time. And it was a time when you automatically went to church and people were starting to, to stop going to church automatically. So his story kind of reflects that in the 70s, there was this drifting away. And I think it's beautiful how they do that in a couple of scenes.
4: I blame the Exorcist personally let's talk a little bit about this whole idea of gus. I mean I talked about how we have the the faces and they're kind of interchangeable at least to me and we've got the one guy, Gus, and it took me the longest time to even realize like because I saw you know like I said, I saw this on a Saturday night, you know years and years ago, maybe I'd had a few coca-colas beforehand. I'm not really sure. And we've got this whole thing where we see Gus carrying home these groceries. And then it doesn't become something that we see on screen. It becomes something that we hear via dialogue is that Gus was jumped by these guys, these Puerto Rican guys. So we, again, we're playing up the whole idea of the race angle and everything. Because we do have one scene earlier on, which just, it makes my skin crawl. This whole um, scene where they're the faces are walking and, and Gus is still with them at this point. And they, they see these two gay guys guys coming towards them and oh just the way that they start um making fun of these two guys just oh it really makes my skin crawl with them you know doing this and in the script there's a little bit more of them bashing them and and luckily it's not a physical bash but they're just like oh yeah you don't kill what is it you don't kill a queer on sunday because they'll go right up to heaven or something like that it's just like just like Oh man. And one of the, the other signs where you're just like, yeah, these guys aren't as progressive as I would really hope that they were, but it's so true to them, you know? And so when Gus gets jumped by these, what he says are some Puerto Rican guys, they immediately, they're just like all these grease balls. We're going to get these guys. They figure out, or they think they figure out who it is that jumps him. And then throughout a few other scenes in the film, we see them kind of stalking this gang that is in the neighborhood and then eventually it blows up and becomes this whole thing of them going out and and having this fight. And it's just so weird to me that they do it like the night before or or the night of, I don't even know. I think it's the night before the big dance contest. And Tony doesn't give a shit. He goes into the dance contest with his face all cut up and stuff. And it's like, man, you know, you would think you would wait, but no, it was much more important for them to go out and get these guys that got Gus. And then they go to the hospital and Gus is like, yeah, I'm not even sure it was those guys. And just that, like, you know it's just another one of those times in this movie where you're just like oh man you know just another heavy weight kind of hitting your shoulders it's like these guys just they can't win at all and they trying to do the right thing in their minds of defending their friend he doesn't even know if it was these guys at all these are
5: guys full-fledged characters who are incredibly imperfect and full of isms and phobias and um you know Again, seeing that in the 90s, it's such a bummer when they're gay bashers. You so, It's so hard to get through that and get over that. But now that things have gotten better for us folk, you can kind of take it. It's a little easier to take. Because you see, you you can see where they're coming from. You know, their ignorance and et cetera, et cetera.
4: Because we get that right off the bat when it's like, you know, I don't want to hear this Latin music at the club and blah blah blah. And you know, and they, um, it's like there's so few black faces that are in the club. It's it's unusual to see any people of color like in this world, even though they're in Brooklyn, which is kind of funny to me now when I think about, you know, the melting pot of Brooklyn, but it's just, they are so like white people, white straight people only, please. And, you know, they get so offended when anybody of any other color comes into their club, comes into their space, it just, they, and comes into their neighborhood. They just don't want it.
5: Well, and I so think just, that's what's important and that's, this is very important about Brooklyn and and not now that Brooklyn's rich and fancy, but that Brooklyn of that era very much your neighborhood. And so Bay Ridge was... Is Italian and believe it or not, Norwegian. So those are the two people that are there: Italians and Norwegians. So if you know, they obviously didn't get into the Norwegian thing. However, I've been to the Norwegian Day Parade there many times, <laughs> so I can tell you that. But it is very much an Italian neighborhood. So if you're not that, you're not welcome. And that nightclub, I remember going to that um, in the late '80s or early '90s, and you couldn't even get. At least we couldn't figure out how to get there by subway. But we went, um, we had to borrow a friend's car and we went to this place, and it still had the same people in it. And um, it had that same dance floor that lit up. It was kind of amazing. <laughs>
4: I just saw that there was an NPR story about that dance floor, that there was this whole legal fight about the dance floor.
0: The lighted dance floor where Travolta strutted his stuff is at the center of an odd custody battle now, as Dina temple roston reports. The beat is immediately recognizable, a staple that is a theme song not just for a movie, but for the disco age. What a difference three decades makes. Today, memories of Saturday Night Fever, have been largely reduced to John Travolta's white suit, now in the Smithsonian Institution, and the lighted plexiglass floor of the 2001 Odyssey, the Brooklyn club where Travolta showed the world he could dance. dance. That floor is at the center of a bitter court battle in the Kings County Supreme Court, as two businessmen, Vito Bruno and Jay Rizzo, tangle over who owns this piece of disco history
4: real quick before we get to the very very end of the film the one thing that i wanted to point out that i alluded to earlier was the whole scene with stephanie where tony goes in he wants the afternoon off he quits his job goes across the the bridge with bobby c and or uses bobby c's car i should say and helps stephanie move and to find out well one that she has this kind of quasi boyfriend but to find out the relationship that she has with this boyfriend very interesting to me and that seems to be like because he's also putting her down like the the way that she puts other people down for being ignorant he's definitely doing that but in a much more passive aggressive way this whole idea of like
2: hey I read that book you told me to you know the car or the uh, Lawson the car.
4: should have read the Lawson You know, it's just like, oh man, he's just, he probably tears her down all the time. So, that to me is a great scene and kind of shows where Stephanie's coming from a lot of time. But yeah, going to the end of the film, the big dance contest. You would think that the dance contest is going to be this huge thing. We've been talking about it, we've been working towards it all movie. This is going to be the pinnacle of this film. And,. The dance contest, it is fantastic to watch. These dancers are amazing, but it's not the end of the movie. And it's also one of these great moments in this film where things don't go the way that you think they're going to go. When the th- the third couple gets up there, we see three couples dance, and they come in for a second, third place. You would think maybe we'd get a few more couples, but no, that's not the case. We get... we get the third couple up there and they're dancing to this Latin music that I've talked about before. They're dancing to this song. They're doing an amazing job and Tony knows it. And he just, either he really thinks that they're, they're better than he is. And he and Stephanie are, or he just is in such a place where, he doesn't feel like he is number one anymore, but there's this whole thing, man. This is where Tony just decides to break with everything and says, these guys are better than we are. This whole contest is rigged. They're not going to give it to outsiders. And, he even gives them the trophy and the prize money and storms out of the club after he berates everybody around him for basically lying to him. And he, you know, even my friends are lying to me. They, they don't have the balls to tell me that these people are better than I am.
5: Well, I think it's very clear that they are better. It's so obvious that they're so much better and that he's the only one um, willing to admit it. You know, I think Badham did a great job in, in making that clear
4: this whole thing man this because it's right around here too that we go back to the bridge we've had them on the bridge before and the way that the friends go to this bridge and they you know laugh and they joke around and all this kind of stuff oh and this is also I mean this is like the end of this movie is just jam packed and it's like Oh, my God, all this stuff is happening so quickly and just one thing right after another, because this is also where we get Annette coming back into the story. She's been there throughout it, and she's trying to, you know, get with Tony throughout the entire film. She finally just says, fuck it, and lets all of the faces, except for Bobby C., of course, all of the faces have sex with her. And it just, oh, man, one of the most uncomfortable moments in the entire film for me is them having sex with her in the back seat. And especially when she starts crying. I mean, Tony's right there. Tony is, you know, she's looking at Tony while she's getting banged by these other guys. And it's just, oh, just tears my heart out and i forgot to mention that there's a uh, a potential rape scene in here with tony and with stephanie and him trying you know this guy like you said rob at the at the outset this guy homo homophobic racist tries to rape this girl <laughs> it's just like this yeah. is our hero you know this is this is prime 1977 film you know
1: light and frothy fun Oh, you yeah. Know, which right. which I, I would love to see the G rated cut of this because I, when I was doing the research, I guess the R rated version went out. It was so well received that they decided to cut down to a G version and put that out as well. And I'd love to see what they cut out of this thing.
4: Yeah, I've never tracked down the, the PG-rated version of this, but uh, I do talk a little bit about that to, to John Batham when we uh, get to the interview section. So, yeah, it's just it, – it, I can't imagine. And for me, it was probably knowing how things were in the 70s. They probably eliminated like a couple F words, and that was about it, you know. <laughs> Maybe – probably not even, you know, Bobby C. when he falls off the bridge. One rape- again – Date rape. Maybe. Kids like date rape. I mean, come yeah. on. You know, Kids love it. There you go.
5: Yeah. That's what really struck me about the, the screening it today was that it really is like a roofie. It's, it's not exactly a roofie gang date rape, but it kind of is. Yeah, you
4: know. Oh yeah, because there's yeah. That's the other thing that we haven't mentioned is the drug use. There's drug use throughout this entire film, you know. And whenever he gets in the car with the faces, they're like, "Oh, we got these drugs and this drugs." And yeah, they're given a net drugs towards the end. You know, she's
1: she's driving and drinking at the same time. Oh yeah, they're just drinking right out of the bottle as they drive. I'm just like, what? (laughs) Yeah.
4: And they smoke cigarettes. That's an X rating right now. Can you imagine, you know, like
1: when you see the the trailers now, you know, where they have the the, the MPA green band and it says, you know, four rated R for these reasons. It's like that box would be huge. Just all of the stuff that would be in there.
4: And for me, the the screenplay does this a little bit better. As far as the end of the film, it feels like the, the script is really tight when it comes to the way that um, – Things are just building, 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 because I've mentioned so many things that are happening right in a row, and that just is leading Tony down this whole, like, you know, what the fuck is going on kind of thing, and it it goes even further, I think, with the script, and it almost felt like I couldn't turn the pages fast enough as I'm reading this, and his whole thing where he's on the subway, and he's going from, you know, it, it, they don't necessarily show it as well as they might have, but he's going from car to car to car, just like, Going on different subway lines, has no idea which way he's going, like literally and transportationally. And it's this whole idea. One of the things that's in the script that, and I know that they shot this because it's apparently in one of the versions, is that they do show his father get his job back. Like, there's a call from the employment office or whatever, and he's going to get his job back, which makes it a little easier, I think, for us to accept that he's just going to leave Manhattan. He's going to leave his family. So, take that as you will. I don't know if it makes it better or worse that we know that his father's going to get his employment back, but Tony is just done. He's done with everything. Goes to Stephanie's apartment, and just talk about one of the strangest endings. You know, it's like... It, rather than them ending on the dance floor with him holding up the trophy or something like that, it ends with this such a quiet moment of him getting back into Stephanie's life, talking with her and them agreeing to be friends and boom, you know, freeze frame end movie. It's like, what the hell just happened?
5: That's why I think it's such a beautiful, beautiful, smart um, movie that has aged so well, though, because thematically, This crazy movie that's drug use, sex, dance, music, date rape, suicide, uh, teenage pregnancy. We didn't mention that one. It's all of those things. But ultimately, all the movie is about is how a macho young man learns how to be friends with a girl. That's what the movie's about, and it's beautiful, that simple thing, and it's that beautiful shot of their two hands coming together, which I must say in the remastering is really gorgeous. That often is a cliche, and I do not like that in movies, but is done so artfully in this movie, and um, even the phrase freeze-frame I kind of like because it's so 70s, and I do a little homage to that myself. But it, it really is. If you think about the movie, how does it start off? It starts off on his feet and on him hustling a girl, treating women like meat. That all, you know, women are there to be fucked for Tony Man- Manero, right? And in the end, he learns to be friends. She says, "You think you can be friends with a girl, huh?" And he says, "Yeah, well, maybe." And that's quite a huge. That's the big arc that this character goes through internally.
4: I think. All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview with the director of Saturday Night Fever, John Badham.
6: Your second movie, second feature film I should say, was Saturday Night Fever, mm-hmm. and it was such a huge hit. I mean, I don't think people really understand these days how big of a film that was. What was the expectations going into this? Was there any did you have an inkling that it was going to be what it ended up being? No,
7: no. Maybe only only Robert Stigwood, in his dreams, as the producer, as a very you know optimistic, positive thinking producer, was thinking that it would be big. But it was an extremely low budget, two and a half, three million dollar picture that uh, was kind of a placeholder for John Travolta while he was waiting to start Grease. And, and it was a, this terrific article that had appeared in New York Magazine. And uh, Robert Stigwood bought it. He had already made a, a contract with John Travolta to do Greece, a three picture contract. And he said, Oh, this article would be great. We could make a movie with John while we're waiting for Olivia Newton John to become available. To shoot uh, Greece, so yeah, we can do it if we can do it for no money, yeah. and then and that's how kind of how it started, and and uh, I was having a great time with it. Uh, I loved the the music the Bee Gees uh, had had uh, demoed up for it and written, and uh, and I really loved the script. I mean, it's just so. So seldom you ever read anything that just gets you the first time through, and and this was one that got me out of my sick bed. I mean, I was in bed with a uh, you know, hundred and one fever or something like that, and uh, <laughs> and my agent sent it over and said, "Don't read this. They they want you to do this, but don't read it till I make a deal." Well, of course, I started reading it right away, and like an hour and a half later. <laughs> I'm I'm feeling all better. I'm going, oh, my God, this is great. I can't believe I get to work on this. And, and at that point, I hadn't even heard any music, you know, and didn't even think of it as something that was, you know, a musical, kind of a new form of musical. I just was entertained by the characters and the story and uh, and the whole world of that and this from a kid who grew up in Alabama and was born in England and had never been to Brooklyn in my life but it was so universal that it spoke to me you know uh, obviously it spoke to other people as well you
6: know it's really almost shakespearean with the whole uh, romeo and juliet the divide between the classes and the the groups you know i i, I kind of really appreciate that about the film
7: yeah it's a, the, the class structure is uh, is is definitely there, very subtly understated. I mean, Norman Wexler was a genius. And um, if you went back and you read the original magazine article, you'd go, well, that's a nice article, uh, but I don't get the characters. I don't see the story. I don't see the movie. You'd have to be a novelist, just kind of starting from, uh, you know, just a very vague suggestion of an area. And uh, Norman, you know, just, just, they're miraculous.
6: I was a little too young to see that at the theater when it came out, but then wasn't it actually recut from an R to a PG at one point so more people could see it? That was
7: the theory. The R rating was going great guns. I mean, it was doing, it was doing a million dollars a day for weeks and weeks and weeks. I mean, it just went on and on, and uh, in the theater near my house, it ran for six months. The only film in there just kept running and running and running, so the marketing guy said, well, gosh, the kids can't see this. Uh, Of course, they were getting in. The kids were getting in anyway, which was the great thing. They were, you know, people were taking them in. uh, Their parents were taking them, or they'd go up and get somebody to buy tickets for them, and... The theaters weren't that fussy about the seventeen rule, but nevertheless, I think within three or four weeks of the picture being released in its original release, they said we should make a PG version. And uh, and I had I had said to Robert Stigwood at the time I was shooting it, I said I should shoot some coverage just for television's sake, because uh, this language will never fly on television. And, and no, don't worry about that. We don't care about that. And I just did it anyway, because I knew, I just knew, and I'd been doing enough television to know, you know, what was allowable and what was not allowable. And if I just took a few minutes here and there, I could, I could cover it and make my life easier. And sure enough, we went through, we cut out all the profanity. I said, I'll, I'll do this cut myself because If anybody's going to mess with it, it should be me. You know, I only have myself to kick around. So it's got to be done. Okay, let's not complain. We'll just do it. We went through. We cut all the profanity out. And my editor looks at me and says, well, we just cut 12 minutes out of the movie. (laughs) You go, oh, my God, that's how much stuff there was in there. And, And the television coverage that I had done Interestingly enough, not only worked fine, but in some cases the performances were better than the stuff with all the profanity in it because we'd usually do them as one of the last takes, okay, do it again but cut out all the fucks. And <laughs> and, and and the guys would kind of throw it away. They they sort of disrespected it and didn't care and I thought, "Oh, this is stupid." And and it actually relaxed them and 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 a lot of those performances are actually in the R version. When that P G version finally came out, it was almost nine months later, I think. It didn't do any business. By by that point it was, you know, it was everything was over and and the movie had done its deal and, and a re release, you know, nobody cared. So it it really was actually the uh, the foundation for the television version that's been running for all these many years, and for a long time, you know until h b o and Showtime came along um you you couldn't see you know the full original version any, anywhere else. it does get you those characters just get you, and John's performance is there's just electric, you know, and uh i mean it was it was not a hard job of directing. It was not like I was out there killing myself, trying to drag performances out of people i mean they' he understood that character brilliantly and and I had opted for a you know a kind of very quasi documentary realistic style uh on it and and uh you know it just seemed to go together really really nicely hard work but uh not not tough and and uh, you know every day i would thank god for how good he was
6: were you asked to come back for staying alive mm-hmm. uh i was and
7: i was excited about it and and i read the norman second script and uh, all the the humor of the first one seemed to be gone and it seemed to have gone into a much kind of darker place and and I, and it 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 just didn't talk to me and I, and i and I didn't get it uh and and Robert Stigwood said, no that's what this is what we want to go with and and by that point, I knew how how tough he was and how stubborn he was and uh so I wasn't going to get in and have a big argument with him and i I just felt like eh, not my not my cup of tea so i I said, thank you and 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 stayed away. and and then then, when I heard Stallone was doing it, I thought, "Well, hey, that's a good idea. Look at that. something fresh and uh, bring a whole different thing to it. And uh, you know, took it fine. let it let it be the way it is."
1: Mr. Batham for joining us and you can hear the rest of that interview over at our website projection-booth.com. He was on recently talking about a book that he wrote related to directing and filmmaking. Now before Saturday Night Fever was a movie, there was a short story in The New Yorker written by a rock writer Nick Cohn called The Tribal Nights of the New Saturday Night which was passed off originally as solid reporting as nonfiction, and it appears uh, that was uh, not the case.
4: Not the case, no. Kind of just made it up. Yeah, it kind of came clean quite a few years later. I don't like that it wasn't real, but, uh, you know, in this era of uh, web journalism, it's kind of typical.
1: Well, as we say, never let the facts get in the way of a good story, right?
4: And I like how he even puts himself in the story so often and just kind of puts himself there on the scene with this guy, Vincent, who uh, is going out to the disco late at night.
1: Oh, Vincent. Vincent Baker?
4: Exactly. Yeah. I I thought that was kind of funny. There's a lot of similarities here and there, but I would say that, um, it it changed quite a bit. I mean, it's what twenty pages, maybe. Just I took it, threw it into Google Docs, and it's twenty pages. So it's not that long of a story. And there's some, you know, similarities as far as you know the name of the club is still 2001 Odyssey. They're not necessarily called the Faces, but there's a line about you know Vincent was the best dancer in Bay Ridge, the ultimate face with a couple of F. He owned. Fourteen floral shirts, five suits, eight pairs of shoes, three overcoats, and this one is interesting. And he had an appearance on American Bandstand. Otherwise, you know, there's a couple things here and there, but it's not that similar.
1: So this gets taken, and then you, obviously being the uh, the reader, because you know, as we know, I have this horrible issue when it comes to reading. You also read Norman Wexler's screenplay. So how do you see it as him taking this? short story and then turning it into the film like 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 what's in there i mean is it okay it's the guy it's the disco it's the peacock <laughs> angle i guess you know getting all dialed up so, so those are the main things or do we find that sort of as we were talking about before like that working class um everyday misogynist uh, kind of stuff
4: i i can see him being this kind of the same character when it comes to this. I mean, really the the stuff that I talked about earlier, as far as Tony going out and finding that Puerto Rican gang that screwed up, you know, that, that messed up Gus, that becomes really kind of, um, in twenty pages there's not a whole lot of stuff it's just kind of more like here's this scene that's going on here's this other scene so it's very similar to what Wexler ended up doing with the structure of the screenplay and it ends with them you know going out and and uh, trying to get these guys there was this guy who messed up somebody's sister and so they're going to go get this guy this vigilante justice kind of thing so it's kind of like that there's no real like the dance contest any of this kind of stuff but there is this whole idea of this character Vincent is not necessarily appreciated but he can dance really well and there's talk of the music and all this kind of stuff but yeah Wexler really took this and changed it into something uh, a lot more uh, full A lot it, it had uh, even though it has this kind of episodic structure it does have a structure and we get all these multiple stories being told and moving ahead as we go through the Saturday Night Fever. I mean, we get some that... Get introduced and that eventually end like the Father Frank Junior kind of thing, but then we have other ones that you know will carry us through like the whole idea of Tony's relationship with Annette or you know the Bobby C's relationship with the girlfriend and his whole problem or Stephanie and all these things. But there's not necessarily like a Stephanie character in the story, so it's much more uh, Wexler taking a, a twenty page short story and breathing completely new life into it, and then also you know it's interesting because the Wexler story it's very similar to what we end up with on screen but there's no music and the music and the dance you know you you can't necessarily say like and then Tony starts to do this kind of russian dance and it looks really cool that's not in the screenplay so it's it's interesting to take away the music which was so important to the film and take away the dancing and just have it be you know straight uh, black text on a white page so it it, um, it reads a lot different than the final product
1: the one thing that's interesting about norman wexler when you look at his credits was before he wrote saturday night fever he wrote mandingo which was an adaptation obviously of a book and uh, co-wrote serpico and this is where it connects to the original director was he wrote the screenplay for joe which was the first film that put John G. Avilson on the map, which would eventually do Saturday Night Fever. So uh, until he got fired.
4: <laughs> it's interesting when it comes to Joe, because um, I think I made mention of this before on the show, or maybe I didn't, but uh, one of the guys who was involved with Joe was the same guy who directed uh, Galaxina and the incredible melting man, William Sachs, who, the rumor has it that he went in and kind of helped save Joe, that it was a much different movie at one point, and he went in and helped re edit the entire thing and change it into the movie that it is. Now, you know, we'll be talking to Mark later on as far as editing of movies and changing of movies when it comes to that, but I haven't seen the original version of Joe, and so I don't know if that would have been a better movie, but apparently it was a very different movie, and the movie that came out was very popular.
1: I mean, all I know about it – I saw it once years ago, and all I know is it's Peter Boyle in the lead. And this is – I mean, Peter Boyle came on my radar when I was a little kid because my dad was a huge Mel Brooks fan, so I saw Young Frankenstein so many times. And then also I think it may be the first film role for Susan Sarandon.
4: I think you're right, yeah. And yeah, Peter Boyle definitely saw him a lot in Young Frankenstein. And then um when I got into Scorsese and saw him in taxi driver, I'm just like, that's the same guy. Oh my gosh.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, why don't why don't you go out? I mean, why don't you go out and get laid or something? You know, that's what you need to do, you know. He's got that speech with uh with Travis where he's like, You're just too wound up, man. You know, yeah. go relax.
4: <laughs> wizard. Wasn't that his character's name?
1: Yeah, wizard. Yeah, he's oh, another taxi God. driver.
4: So good. Yeah, and Avelson was on the film, and he was all set to go. He was coming off of Rocky, and apparently he got the news of being nominated for an Oscar for Rocky on the same day that he got fired from Saturday Night Fever. <laughs> so.
3: Well, at least there's
1: balance. I mean, it's <laughs> At least it wasn't like, oh, my dog died and the car broke down and I also got fired. But it's like, oh, I got nominated for an Oscar. And I got fired from this other gig. Okay, well, I guess that balances out. Which he eventually went on to win, um, you know, uh, director in Best Picture for Rocky. And uh, there's one last little piece of that carryover of John G. A. Adelson in Saturday Night Fever, and that's the Rocky poster in Tony Monero's bedroom.
4: Yeah, which is amazing. I think you and I were talking about this before the show is just the whole idea that being able to put a a poster from another studio's uh, catalog into your film, you just don't see that these days. You're not going to see a a Paramount poster in a Universal film unless they're doing a co-production.
1: Yeah, it was, well, I mean, it was Universal uh, No, it was United Artists to put out Rocky and Paramount put out saturday night fever so <laughs> it wasn't like okay go into the paramount uh poster closet there and pick out a poster that's going to work for this film no, no no it's like we'll put the we'll put the rocky poster in there
4: so Avelson was writing high norman wexler the screenwriter he was writing high he had done joe co-writes serpico and then drum and mandingo as well and then it, apparently he was just like the script doctor that you go to when it comes to all this stuff like you know it's one of these things where the guy's got six seven credits on imdb but he was an active working writer for years and years and years and the guy that you go to to have your script fixed
1: so he was sort of the john sales of the 70s and the, you know i'll do it but you know you don't put my name on it kind of thing they pay you not to take a credit kind of deal
4: The one thing that I always say to screenwriters when we have them on the show is just how difficult it is to gauge what they're doing or what they've been up to because – so many of them never get credit for anything. It's just they come in, they do rewrites, they you know, do an initial draft, they get arbitrated out, whatever it is. Yeah. So you never know. I mean, you know, talking to Ed Newmyer on RoboCop, it's like, oh, so you've written like three screenplays in your entire life. No, he's done a lot of stuff.
1: <laughs> or they get paid to write something that never gets produced. So it's like, yeah, I got thousands of dollars for that thing, but it didn't, they didn't bother to film it. <laughs> it's sitting in a closet somewhere. It's on someone's shelf. So yeah. bizarre. The the other thing that was interesting. We were doing a little um, uh, research on Norman Wexler. Was supposedly he was the inspiration for Tony Clifton.
4: There's a great clip on the WTF with Mark Maron podcast where it is Bob Zamuda, who we all know is uh, Andy Kaufman's friend, talking about working for Wexler and just what a nut Wexler was and the lengths that he would go to to get quality dialogue from people. And just just the stories that go on with this and just how abusive this guy was. And it does sound like he really kind of helped fuel the uh, Tony Clifton persona.
1: Which I've always loved Tony Clifton.
4: Yeah, Clifton is an interesting character. I, I, it took me a long time before I kind of got into him. But after after a while, I think as I get more older and cynical, Clifton is more appealing to me. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's good. Well, the thing that's funny is our good friend Uncle Lloydy, Lloyd Kaufman, who who runs Troma, Before he went full time into making his own films, we've discussed this before with him. I think it was mostly on the Toxic Avenger episode where he talked about his early career and working with John G. Avildsen. Lloyd worked on Rocky and then was part of the Avildsen team that came over to work on Saturday Night Fever. And I spoke recently to Lloyd about this so let's take a break and play an interview with Lloyd Kaufman who is the location executive on Saturday Night Fever after these important messages
0: let me ask you a question are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more right? well Adamneat.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts first you'll get a sexy surprise for her second Especially specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number ten, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your ten free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today, select one item, and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com.
7: It was a
1: childhood corrupted by endless hours of VHS rentals.
3: Resake the this, you'd love it.
1: In his most formative years, he had seen it
3: all. I could handle anything. Action. Karate is not to be used aggressively. But if I have no other choice. Horror. <laughs> and romance.
1: Now, he's decided it's time to go back for just one more adventure.
3: Humans are
1: such easy prey. Noel Meller presents
3: You're the problem, you little shit.
1: The Adventures in VHS Podcast. Join me, Noel Meller, as each month I take an in-depth look at one movie from my collection of x rental 80s VHS classics and speak to one or two of the people involved with making them about what the format means to them. The Adventures in VHS Podcast.
3: Thank you. Have a nice day.
1: Download today from iTunes by searching for Adventures in VHS or visit adventuresinvhs.com. We are the Popcorn Poops. My name is Dustin.
0: And my name is Jessica.
1: And together we produce Popcorn Poops, the best married couple movie commentary track podcast on the internet.
0: Join us each week as we take turns picking films and then watch and discuss them together. If you're at home or with a computer or device, you can sync up the movie and watch it right along with us.
1: However, you don't have to sync up the film to enjoy the show. Feel free to tune in like you would to any other podcast.
0: Please visit us on the internet at www.popcornpoops.com.
1: Again, that's www.popcornpoops.com. When I first met you, you had the your first book out. All I uh, need to know about filmmaking I learned from The Toxic Avenger. And one of the things I learned from that book was uh, your, your early years. And I remember was just sort of amazed by uh, sort of the, the, the good luck and hard work that you had when you first started working as an assistant to John Avildsen. And, and one part in there that I wanted to ask you about was about Saturday Night Fever. And do you remember um, when that project came up and how that started to come together? Because I know he got uh, let go from that picture, but you uh, were part of that crew and you continue to work on it.
8: When John Avilson informed Mr. Stigwood that Lloyd Kaufman would be uh, part of his posse, I think that Mr. Stigwood immediately removed John Avilson from being the director.
1: Somehow I doubt that. Maybe today, but not back <laughs> in 1977.
8: That's funny to me. Um, it's probably it had something to do with it. Uh, I was brought on to be uh, the location executive uh, because I had worked for John Avilson on Rocky and um, he's a great guy and a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant uh, director, Oscar winner, and a bit of, a big influence on on my uh, oeuvre, as we say. And um, so he uh, he brought in Norman Wexler to write the script, and Norman Wexler was the guy who wrote Joe, which was Avelson's initial brilliant movie, and again a movie that would have been garbage if uh, John Avilson had not brought in Norman Wexler to write it. Joe is all John Avelson and Norman Wexler it has nothing to do with what the original project was and and uh, I think a lot of that w- was true because of John and uh, Wexler on Saturday night fever and in fact I know it's true and then uh, disputes arose uh, and um, uh, Avilson uh, I think Avilson you know it know was if I if I were going to produce a movie with a guy who just directed the oscar-winning movie rocky a very small movie that has is beca- took over the world not just the so-called hollywood this the hollywood the the nothing they took over the whole world and stigwood's going to question john avilson fuck him you know but unfortunately robert stigwood was the uh the, the boss you know i would have you know i'm i'm hotel uh director i I believe in total freedom for the directors, the director's event. Boy, I, under those circumstances, I would have let John G. Avelson bring in an elephant to dance if that's what John G. Avelson wanted.
1: Do you remember what some of the, uh, the the issues were, why they were at odds? or?
8: Well, I've mentioned it in my book, uh, and I think John also gave me some input on it, that's, and I think it's in the book. But honestly, I don't re- quite recall. All I know is that it was... You know, in the fullness of time, what a mistake. On the other hand, they got. On the other hand, they brought in a brilliant director who is terrific. <laughs> and uh, you know, boy, was that a stroke of luck? Whoa, the dice in their favor. Because John Batham is great. He's, you know, you look at his body of work, it's terrific. So, um, you know, they, I think they rolled some good dice in that case. But they shouldn't have. They shouldn't have dumped uh, Mr. avelson in fact, I was just a lowly lo- location guy. I sent—it's in my book—I sent Stigwood with a telegram saying, I, "Urgent, did I speak with you? Urgent, I—I w- I didn't say what." And then, then he he agreed to meet with me, and uh, and I told him, you know, you ought to really—this is crazy—you should think about this. And he was very nice. I have to admit, he was very, very nice. And um, and uh, but he still went through the dirty deed. And. Um, and then I asked Adelson uh, what, what did he think I ought to do, and he said, well, you probably ought to ride the, ride the horse because you'll learn a lot. Uh, it could be a good life experience. And indeed it was. The whole thing was a life experience. And, and once again, John G. Avelson gets it right.
1: So you were brought on. You did locations. Did you help uh, scout and find places? That was what you were doing?
8: Uh, I was the, if you look at the end credits carefully, and I have a uh, half-screen credit, which is pretty damn good for Newton. Uh, uh, I was the executive in charge of locations. So uh, I was responsible for uh, not just acquiring the locations, but certain stipulations that went along with them. And and, uh, also the, uh, uh, you know, when you, for example, John Travolta's house, it wasn't just the house that had to be organized, but the street and then the the neighbors had to be in on it because they, we might want to put lights in their windows uh, or, or 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 either maybe put people on their roofs or God knows what. Or park trucks in their driveways or generators, or whatever. So it it was kind of like running for Congress, and um, and uh, I, it was quite a quite a quite a challenging experience to say the say the least.
1: And he was Mister Travolta at the time was a pretty well known uh, commodity thanks to Welcome Back, Cotter. And you know how was he to deal with on set and you know, as you said, it doing was, those uh,
8: locations. Travol- Travolta was great. Um, uh, and, and a very nice guy. And, and in fact, when the thing was over, he gave me a Tiffany, uh, pretty nice with a little, uh, uh I don't know how to describe it, but a little mirror, like a little charm on it that, that had my initials and his initials on it. So uh, that's pretty nice considering uh, who the hell was I. And, um, and and uh, I'm in that film. If you look carefully, when uh, the brother is driving away, uh, I am his limo driver. Well, not driving, uh, probably not limo, but uh, Lincoln Town Car driver.
1: You also told a uh, small story in the book about how uh, the lovely Pat Kaufman uh, kind of uh, fell for Mr. Travolta. And, uh...
8: Yes, we actually, that's right. When, when Mr. Evelson was on the case, we would go out. Uh, a disco to the discotheques at, uh, and they didn't open really it didn't get lively until after midnight so uh, we'd go out with Travolta and look at the locations and, um, and uh, I remember that uh, John Travolta and my, my wife danced at one of these discotheques and boy was I jealous because I wanted to dance with John Travolta
1: You said it was a great learning experience what, did, what do you think you learned on working on Saturday Night Fever that helped you moving forward doing other film
8: well, I got to work with two great directors, you know, and, and, and I think that's the most important thing. I saw how, uh, um, you know, I saw the issues with John Avelson, but I also saw how Batham came in and put his own mark on the film and also had to deal with a very, uh, uh, uh you know, the, it was a modest budget and he made it happen. You know, he brought, I think he really brought something you know, built on something brilliant and made it even even more uh, unique. And um, uh, uh, that was a big deal for me. And also how he managed to put blinders on because there was such mediocrity in the film world. And uh, uh, all these movies that are uh, kind of mainstream, they're just front loaded with mediocrity and people who care more about the lunch than the uh, little details of a script. And uh, and uh, I saw Batam managing to really deal with that kind of stuff.
1: About how much time did he have to set things up? I mean, into the process. Like, were you guys just about to shoot? Or what do you remember about sort of the change of directors? When did that happen?
8: That's a really good question. I think there was a couple of weeks. I don't think there was a lot of time. I don't think there was a lot of time. Honestly, I'd have to I really don't recall. Yeah. It just seemed fast.
1: Well, I mean, obviously, when you know the train's rolling and you're working on all these things, and then oh well, there's a new captain you know running the show it's it's obviously um you have to kind of i guess improvise and roll with it as it happens correct
8: well uh it it went you know i mean Baton was the right guy he made he made magic you know he got it he, he made it happen and and it's honestly, it's Norman Wexler and Avelson's vision with more brilliance to go with it, you know. I, I you know again I've never I've not really discussed that I wonder what John Avelson would say about that that's pretty interesting because and I wonder what Batten would say about it I think it I think that John Batten brilliantly on very little notice brought John G Avelson's vision with Norman Wexler of Saturday Night Fever not just to the screen but to the screen plus added brilliance
1: and I mean for you working on both of those films I mean Rocky and then Saturday Night Fever I mean it must have been like the whole crew. I mean, the, the whole thing kind of got struck by lightning twice because you had two films that became such iconic pieces of film. I mean, what would? I mean, I mean, obviously, I mean, you've, we've talked before about Rocky when that thing took off. But what do you remember about Saturday Night Fever and sort of the reaction to that?
8: Uh, it was kind of the same thing as Rocky. I think they brought it out during sort of a, a, a low key. Season. I don't think they, they opened it on Christmas or anything. I think it was kind of almost snuck in there and the thing just took off. It was amazing. And uh, it uh, it was a great film. It was terrific. You know, I never... I, I, both with Rocky and Saturday Night Fever. Those were great films. I never, for a second... And again, I was really young. So when you're young, anything can happen. You know, you don't look at the downside. You You, you only see the upside. And I honestly... Those were the only two movies where I really had, had uh, learning experiences. Uh, I didn't really work on another movie until uh, we were involved in, in uh, Final Countdown in '79. So that, that was, those were my film, my film school. And I knew those guys, that both of them, I would have gotten off of Saturday Night Fever if I had not detected very fast that John Badham was a major, major talent. In fact, the reason that I would have gotten out fast if, is that I, when I was starting out, I would work for very little and in exchange for a, a more significant uh, screen credit because, you know, so everything in the movie business is pretty uh, superficial. So, you know, if you, the bigger the credit, you know, the bigger you must be. So I'd, I'd forego, uh, uh, you know, uh, being able to get decent wine. I'd get the box wines, but I had the full screen credit. and uh, no, it was half screen credit, depending on what movie it was. And and um, so that's how I got that fancy uh, half-screen credit. But basically, I was just a, a, you know, kind of a unit manager type of thing. Oh, and in fact, another lesson for you film people out there about the wonderful world of Hollywood. Ah, when when Saturday Night Fever was being edited, you know, since I had that half-screen credit, I, and since Badham's long gone, avilson has gone, anyone who knows me is long gone, I'm thinking to myself, hmm, maybe I ought to just check on that—that uh, that make sure that everyone at Paramount is aware that I have a half-screen credit at the end of the movie. <laughs> and I got in touch with uh, the uh, so-called post-production producer or whatever he was, <laughs> and uh, and he was prepared to to screw me. He was prepared to tell me, "Oh no, no, no! People in that area—they never get a that kind of credit. That's not." And I said, "Well, wait a minute, Mister So and So." I forego. I, I only got uh, half my salary. This was a deal. That's a contract. And he said, "Oh no, no, these things. No, 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 never. Go, go to hell. You know, get lost." And luckily, luckily, Ron Stigwood, the nephew of Mr. Robert Stigwood, was still working on the uh, production, and he told that uh, shithead, "Look, buddy, <laughs> this guy did. Uh, Lloyd Kaufman was in ma- ma- major way." Uh, a large part, uh, a part of the team of Saturday Night Fever, and we have a contract, and you better honor it. And um, thanks to Ron Stigwood, uh, I got that credit. But the Hollywood system would have been perfectly happy to t- toss me overboard, you know, even with a contract. And then I could have spent five years trying to, uh, and it wouldn't have been worth it. you know. I would have dropped it. He knew that. And his name is? <laughs> I can't remember.
1: <laughs> That's definitely a good story about... Um... You know, do you, you think that still works for people today who are starting out? Who would, you know, work for less and so they can get a better credit? I would
8: credit? work for anybody for nothing. I'd almost pay to work because film school is 50,000 a year. If I were starting out, I would get onto any kind of a set I could. But uh, and and when I and I and if I was if I had a free day, work on anything no matter how wretched, but try to identify talented uh, uh, film directors. And and uh, if that's what you want to do, and then uh, do their laundry, whatever it takes, get get in with them, and and you learn so much. That's my film school. If, you know, so what if I worked for free, or worked for half price, or, or work for or paid to work? You know, again, working with major, major, major talent is worth a lot more than uh, paying fifty thousand bucks for NYU or uh, UCLA or University of Michigan.
4: Coffin for taking the time to talk to us. We'll have links to some of the other episodes where you can hear Uncle Lloyd over at our website, projection-booth.com. We really can't overstate the importance that Saturday Night Fever had and what a cultural phenomenon this was. I mean, we talked earlier about the whole idea of an R-rated movie getting a PG cut so that more people could see it. I mean, really, not necessarily done ever, I think, except for this one. It's
1: the only one I can think of. I mean, I understand, like, TV cuts and airplane edits and things like that, but I... Never heard of them going, you know, we're going to release a different version of the film to theaters. I mean, really? Wow.
4: Right, this was back in the day when theatrical runs would go on for a long, long time, and you know come back theatrically. So there, this is pre-video, of course. So this was such a phenomenon as far as you know being held over and everything. I mean, the the soundtrack for the film was the number one selling soundtrack in the world for all these years. This is 1977. It finally got bumped out of the top selling soundtrack spot in the early 90s when The Bodyguard came out. But this was huge. This was one of those where it's like, oh yeah, well, Dark Side of the Moon it has been on the, the charts for all these weeks, and Saturday Night Fever. I mean, this thing stayed forever. This double album filled with all these BG songs and some other songs that necessarily aren't that good i mean there's some great songs in here and i love the yvonne elman song but some of the stuff like um it's so bizarre that they would have covers of the songs on the same soundtrack you know like the more than the woman um uh, Travaris, uh, version of it it's just like yeah this really isn't that that good but you know you've even got casey and the sunshine band and all this kind of stuff but um yeah some great great music, and it just was out there forever. And then, of course, as a phenomenon, it is going to get lampooned. So I know, Rob, you said like one of the first times that you saw the iconic white suit wasn't on John Travolta, but it was on Robert Hayes. (laughs) Yeah,
1: Yeah, and I also talk about this scene being also the first time in my youth that I remember someone making a joke about Detroit in a film. And it's an airplane where Robert Hayes is talking – about how he met the um, Julie Haggerty character.
7: I remember when we first met. It was during the war. I was in the Air Force, stationed in Drambui, off the Barbary coast. I used to hang out at the Magumba Bar. It was a rough place, with the seediest dive on the wharf, populated with every reject and cutthroat from Bombay to Calcutta. It's worse than Detroit.
1: And that was the first time I remember anyone making a joke about my hometown in a film. And then they, um, <laughs> they're they in the bar and the fight breaks out and the one person knocks the um, jukebox and the song comes on, Staying Alive. And he takes off his, his like. I think he had like an air force jacket or something and he's got the whole white suit on and then the floor starts with the lights. And and then even like the, the bums are out there disco dancing and then it just gets, Ridiculous, where he's like swinging around and everything. It's just a great little parody, you know. And it's been done, it's been done in other places. There's been little call outs to it here and there, you know, throughout films since 1977. But that, that probably is the first one because that was 1980.
4: Well, there were actually, um, there was like a, a couple of films that were inspired by Saturday Night Fever, but yeah, definitely that was the one with the, um, the white suit and everything. There was one movie uh, called The Lonely Destiny of John Travolto which came out in 79, this Italian film, and it was this uh, idea of this John Travolta lookalike. Unfortunately, the only version that I was able to find did not have any subtitles, and I'm not that good at speaking Italian, so I wasn't able to understand all the ins and outs of this movie, but it was uh, it was fairly intense, and I mean, the whole movie begins at this disco, and it, instead of it being called Saturday Night Fever, inside of the disco, it's uh, these neon signs say john's fever <laughs> and there's uh the light up floor and all this kind of stuff guy in the white suit and it's just like oh wow and yeah there's this whole thing with you know um him looking like john travolta and he kind of actually does luckily it's not one of these things where it's like you know danny devito and, and arnold schwarzenegger not being able to tell those two apart of twins this guy actually does look like travolta and you know manages to get into this club and do all this kind of stuff but yeah so there's that and then of course there's so many influences i mean saturday night fever kicked off i mean there was disco before saturday night fever but it really brought it into you know the heartland and of course you know there's going to be movie rip-offs and influences galore if something is popular we know that there's going to be 15 copies of it out before you know the end of the decade
1: well, another thing that I find interesting, and I think this is the one that put it on the map for it being used as a word, and I don't even know if it's even still used as a word, it might be, you know, a generation or two back, was I remember when I was in high school, my high school Spanish teacher said that that a version of John Travolta's last name has passed into parlance in South American Spanish slang, and the the... The, the word is trovoltarse, and it means to be suave or to be a swinger. And that, and I think that this film probably was the thing, because it was so international, that allowed that to happen. I, I just remember that from when I was in three years of Spanish.
4: It's interesting that you're saying that that's a uh, S- South American term, because there was a Chilean film that came out in 2008 called Tony Monero, named after the John Travolta character. And it was set in 78, and it's this guy who's obsessed with uh, John Travolta and Saturday Night Fever, and he's got the suit and all this kind of stuff. And uh, it ended up, I think it was um – it ended up being nominated for an Academy Award, if memory serves. And it just uh, – I, I have only watched part of it so far. I wasn't able to see the whole thing for the podcast, unfortunately. But um, what I saw, I enjoyed. And But it was also one of these, like – you know, older guy who's really, you know, trying to recapture or, or get in touch with youth, youth culture. It was kind of uncomfortable. And I had just sat through staying alive and I was already very uncomfortable. So I really didn't want to uh, to subject myself to more at the moment.
1: And that That white suit, the thing that's interesting for us, you know, film geeks and and film geek reviewers like us, was that the white suit eventually was sold at auction and was bought by, of all people, Gene Siskel of Siskel and Ebert. And he had that suit until he died. And I can't remember if it's been auctioned off again or if it's been put somewhere.
4: It should be at the Siskel Center. They should have it in a, in a case.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if they've done that or not. But I know that it was like one of his prized possessions because he actually he absolutely loved Saturday Night Fever. It was such a great film.
4: As soon as you tell me that somebody buys a suit from a film, I'm picturing them putting it on. And seeing Siskel wearing that white suit I, I, it's, it is very humorous to me.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, uh, it doesn't matter that it's that lovely white suit. It will not make you cool. Um, no, no,
4: no. The, not to say that Siskel wasn't cool,
1: but a different kind of cool.
4: A different kind of cool,
1: yes. <laughs> so, so eventually, Saturday Night Fever such a big thing that soundtrack such a big thing, and this is in the era where you know Hollywood was doing some sequels. I mean, there was the Godfather Part Two, uh, there were those Jaws sequels, there was several Rockies. So they eventually decide that about six years later. Now's the perfect time to do a sequel to uh,
2: Saturday Night Fever. I used to be pretty incredible myself when I lived in Brooklyn.
0: Really? What happened?
2: I moved to Manhattan. (laughs) This is Tony Manero. He's got the looks. He's got the guts. He's got the moves. Now, all he needs... Are the breaks. Or oh, you think that because you're in a show and I'm not, that's competition, yeah. right? I think competition. Well, what is it? Envy. If he's going to get to the top. Can you be sure that's ever going to happen? It's going to take everything he's got. you want to dance here, you follow my rules. Because I'm going to push you until you think you're going to die.
1: Paramount Pictures presents John Travolta. In a Robert Stigwood production. A Sylvester Stallone film. Staying Alive.
3: Give me
2: a break, you ain't got the moves of Broadway Oh, I ain't got the moves, right? Oh, really? i never
3: gonna give you up for else's
2: love I love you, Jackie Guys like you aren't relationships You're exercise
0: somebody i don't want to always hear about it
2: i just respect the dancing that's all
0: and her legs and her face and it
2: come on the girl's got like an abundance of talent
3: i've
2: never been asked to leave before
3: oh don't take it personally
2: well how can i not there's nobody else here in the room You can't treat me like this anymore. I promise it'll never happen again. What you've got is an anger and an intensity, and that's what I need to make this show work.
0: No one will ever know you just don't have it. I
3: got it? You're kidding me. Wait to go, Manero! something, I need it.
2: It's five years later, but the fever still burns. Staying Alive.
4: Naming itself after the, I can't say title track, but the opening number for Saturday Night Fever, probably. You would say the iconic track on that. The iconic track, the the song that you think of when you think Saturday Night Fever. Mark, did you get a chance to see uh, Staying Alive?
5: I tried to watch Staying Alive several times over the last 20 years and have not managed. Um, I've started it.
4: (laughs) That's all I can say. So, Rob, you just watched Staying Alive. What did you think of the film? Um,
1: let Let me start here, and then I'll get evil. It makes sense. Just put it that way. In terms of the idea, it makes absolute sense that it's six years later. He's in his mid 20s. He's finally moved out of Brooklyn. He's in Manhattan. And he's trying to use the one thing that he's good at working in that paint store. No, dancing in some way to, um, to get somewhere. Great. Sounds good. Yeah. Write that script.
4: Well. And Norman Wexler did. Yeah. So. And <laughs> Wexler came in. Wrote that script of a young Tony Monero in Manhattan.
1: The, the opening and the credits is um, is it's just a song that's playing, and I am
4: listening to it. And I go not just a
1: song. No, wait, wait a second. I'm listening to it, and I go. I know exactly what this is. I go just like you were talking about the action news being from Cool Hand Luke. This song, part of it. Was used for sports on Channel Four in Detroit in the 1980s and 90s. But I'm just like, what are they going to do? Sports update now? So anyway, um, so this is the, the the big piece de resistance. Is it uh, this this song that was written by?
4: Um, you guessed it, Frank Stallone. As uh, Frank Stallone. As as was there another Stallone involved with this film?
1: Yeah. See, see, here's here's another connection back to Rocky. Sylvester Stallone directed it.
4: Oh, okay huh. so,
1: so so here you go, right? So he's not in it, he just directed it For some reason, Sylvester Stallone thought Hey, why not? I'll direct the sequel to Saturday Night Fever That'll be great And then I'll put my kid brother's music on the soundtrack
4: I'm not sure how they pronounce it in America But I think that's called nepotism
1: Maybe But, you know, if, if it's good nepotism Like the Coen brothers, I don't care If it's good nepotism like um, the Wachowskis Okay, this isn't good nepotism <laughs> so, the only thing that was really cool in that opening sequence. So, so what you get over the credits is the song, and it's a it's a tryout. That, that's that's what I get. It's like some sort of like big cattle call dance thing. And Kurtwood Smith. Oh no, it's Kurtwood Smith. I'm like, is he gonna have a role in this? Well, sadly, no. He's only in the credits. He's like <laughs> he's like a featured extra. And all I could think of is. Um, is him being like, you know, uh, like, like in my head as I'm sort of casting this, he could be like the, the, the guy who's, who's casting and, uh, he'd be like, can you fly Bobby? You know? Oh (laughs) God, that would be awesome. Can
4: you fly Tony?
1: Can you fly Tony?
4: (laughs) (laughs) Cut to Tony Manero in the strings flying across the stage.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Bitches leave.
4: Oh yeah. Clarence Boddicker really would have added something <laughs> to staying alive.
1: Yeah. So so let, let's get in the plot a little bit. Like I said, we come to understand this is Tony Monero. It's six years later, he's in his mid-twenties, and he's trying out for all these all these roles on Broadway. And He's got a girlfriend, but it seems like the end of Saturday Night Fever like never happened. Like he never learned his lesson. Like, like the whole idea was at the end, is like, yeah, I can be friends with a woman. Okay. So we thought, okay, maybe in six years he's grown up a little bit. No, he's he's a liar and he's a misogynist. It's just terrible. He just he's still up kind of like up to his old tricks. But the one thing that I find interesting is he is doing these odd jobs, like a lot of actors do when they're starting out. And he works in a club, and that first club scene is almost like the Funhouse Mirror version of the first scene in Saturday Night Fever, where he goes to the club. When he goes to the club in Sarah Night Fever, it's like all the women are on him. And he's like, oh, yeah, you know, where he's on all the women kind of thing. You know, like you get the idea that, you know, like all these women are his, and he's like, he's there and he can kind of do whatever he wants. And here it's like all the women are on him, and he's just like, ah, go away. I don't want you go away. He's just like shooing them all off. So for me, it was kind of this bizarro world version of what we kind of come to expect in some ways, although certain things do carry over.
4: Well, picking up on that, I mean, you know, I talked about how when he shows up at 2001 Odyssey, that the crowd parts for him. And in this, he's there as a waiter trying to get through and a guy bumps him and he knocks out, you know, over the glass. So Tony is kind of a schlub, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't get picked for the audition. He is working at this low-class dance studio, which feels – it seems like it's along the same lines as the dance studio where he was in Saturday Night Fever. And he's basically become that little shrimpy guy who was running the place, you know? And, and not even. I mean, he's, he's a cog in the wheel. He's one of the instructors, and he's getting yelled at, like, in, right out of the gate because he's late for his class because he was doing the audition. And then we see him at the club, and yeah, he's a waiter now he's not the star when he comes in he's just a dude and so it's it's a little sad to see him transformed in that way and not transformed personality wise because he's now he's got nothing going for him you know before he had his dance and all that kind of stuff and people loved to watch him dance and he was this star you know he's a star in Brooklyn and he comes to Manhattan and now he's just orders um spaghetti and he gets uh, egg noodles or ketchup
1: <laughs> well the other thing that i noticed in here is he then goes i think he goes to this show he goes to this this broadway show this big like dance number and all this and he becomes fixated on this on this one woman who's who's a dancer in the show. I, I wrote down in my notes that I go, in this era, uh, Scorsese shows desire through slow-mo. I'm like, Stallone shows it through multi-exposure and lens flares <laughs> go, going wild. And... It, Like he's just he's watching her and it's just like there's like four different images of her and then there's these sort of like 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 the lights have this like star pattern kind of thing shooting off them and everything it's really kind of like overly done and then we learn that you know he does have a girlfriend but he goes backstage to try and pick this woman up and she's British and she's not falling for any of his stuff and like shuts the door in his face and everything. And it eventually becomes sort of this balancing act for him between the dream girl that he wants, or at least he thinks he wants, and his girlfriend who he's with, who he kind of treats poorly, to say the least, and this double standard issue that he has where his girlfriend starts to get interested in Frank Salone, who's in her band. And she's like, he's like, what are you doing? Like, why are you going out with him? And he's like all jealous of his girlfriend. But at the same time, he's doing the same thing to her and doesn't expect her to get upset.
4: Really, a lot of this stuff is this kind of funhouse mirror of the of the previous film, because in that we had the two women and we had the you know more upper class Stephanie. And in this, it's the Fanola Hughes. Um, I think her name is Laura in this. But I would say that um you know, Cynthia Rhodes as, as Jackie, she doesn't necessarily have the same balls that Annette had in the previous film. So it's just like, okay, this is kind of weird. She definitely feels much more like a doormat. And there is this weird double standard. And then what doesn't help the movie either is that this is 1983 and just everything is so 1980s in this film. So, like, Finola Hughes. It's a beautiful, beautiful woman, but she just looks terrible in this movie with the way that her hair is done and the headbands and all this uh. kind of stuff. I mean, it was just really tough to watch when it came to that kind of stuff. I mean, and we're, you know, 30 years removed from this era of everything, but it was still just like, oh my God, this is so tacky.
1: The other issue I kept having, even though I'm like, I had to keep reminding myself it was 1983, was that for some reason I kept thinking it was earlier, like it was like 81 or something. I don't know why I kept thinking that, but it just seemed like like there was something about it that, like I said, is so early eighties. Like, like I said, the idea isn't bad; it's not a bad idea. It's just that it's just it's poorly executed, and it seems like <laughs> Stallone used it as a vehicle to for his brother for his music career. And this was like right after First Blood, which which is amazing to me because like First Blood's what eighty two. So he must have went like off first blood, did this movie. You want to talk about a completely different change. He's not even in front of the not even in front of the camera on this. And so so things progress and he's sort of balancing these two women. He gets cast in this big show. Satan's alleyway. Oh, fuck. Gates of hell or something. I don't know what the hell they were talking about. But it's like the last 15 minutes of the film is this giant crappy Cirque du Soleil show or something. I don't even know how to like give you a comparable
4: it was it was like the the ice show at the end of death to smoochie but the death to smoochie one made so much more sense and it was a retelling of the film and it was much yes. more entertaining
1: the yes. so so he's in the show and then he starts ad-libbing and he does a solo dance and the director's like he's not supposed to do this and like everybody goes crazy and the, the other thing in there too is his mom comes back now the rest of his family they've all died in a horrible bus accident or something who knows where the hell they are cuz it's never it's never mentioned but his his mom comes to the show and there's even a scene earlier where he goes back home and he apologizes to his mom for basically being a dick when he was a kid but it doesn't seem like he's grown at all it seems like he's still the same person <laughs> from the earlier part of the, from the other film It's not like he had some big epiphany. He's like, oh, yeah, you know, I really shouldn't two time my girlfriend and, you know, and I I, I shouldn't, you know, I should be a better person. No. But for some reason, he finds it in his heart to go home and and tell his mom he's sorry for being an asshole.
4: Yeah, it just feels completely tacked on there. I mean, we know. And we have talked about Stallone having so much talent, especially at this period of his career and everything. And you know him writing the screenplay for Rocky and you know doing such a good job when it came to some of these things. You know he directed Rocky two, II, Rocky three, uh, but uh, yeah, just this film, it's like what. But I will say that the original screenplay didn't have a lot of stuff going for it either. I mean, the thing about uh, staying alive either as screenplay or final film, there's not a whole lot of story here. You know, as we're trying to describe what happens in the film, there's not a whole lot of stuff going on. It's
1: basically, we described it already. That's it.
4: It's Monero bouncing between these two ladies. Yeah. And that's really all you had in the,
1: And going out for auditions to be a dancer. That's it.
4: I will say that the, the screenplay almost takes place before staying alive, the movie, because it's, It's this whole thing of them trying to convince Tony to... Uh, start uh, auditioning for stuff. It's like he refuses to audition for things. He doesn't want to be rejected. But again, it's still it's just there's not a whole lot of stuff going on. It's much more of Tony working at that nightclub. Um, there's this girl there that they're, it's not even like he's going out with either of the girls, which is kind of weird. And the, the one girl who would eventually be the, the Cynthia Rhodes character, she's uh, kind of a floozy and she ends up disappearing for a while and they find out that she was out selling herself and all this kind of stuff. And then the other girl is kind of, you know, highfalutin and everything. So again, kind of going back to that Stephanie character, not quite as distant as the Fanola Hughes character, but at one point she takes Tony out to her parents' place and they have Uh, dinner with her mom and dad and her dad is a psychologist and you can tell that she's just rebelling against her dad and there's this whole dialogue where the dad actually likes Tony because he you know doesn't pull any punches he's very crass and everything but the father just kind of gets off on it but Tony realizes like basically you're using me as this you know circus monkey to go out and shock your parents so the Tony of that screenplay is much more thought out but again just not a whole lot of stuff happens. The whole idea of the Cynthia Rhodes character being in a band and all that kind of stuff, not there at all. I mean, I mean, what I the, you can boil the the Wexler screenplay down into Tony Monero works at a nightclub, and there's two women in the screenplay. That's it. And then you take the movie, and it is so different. I mean, this is Stallone rewriting it from the ground up.
1: That was the one thing I put in my notes. I said, too much dancing, not enough story. And that's really, to be honest... The problem.
4: And it's not the good kind of dancing. It's not like, with Saturday Night Fever, man, it, it, it's like, you know, comparing it to like, um, you know, a musical or even like a porn film or something, where you get those, you know, the, the dance scenes are like the climaxes, you know, and you, you, you go through the story of Saturday Night Fever, blah, 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 and you get to a dance scene, and you get to see John Travolta being fucking awesome out there on the dance floor, and then you get more Saturday Night Fever, and I'm not discounting how great Saturday Night Fever is, I'm just saying, as far as the the pacing and the plotting goes it's just like every you know x number of minutes you're getting another dance scene and you're seeing how you know travolta is just doing his thing and you're reminding the audience how great this guy is at least in one area that he he's a shit he just does all these bad things but when he gets out on the dance floor he's just amazing and you're giving us that every so often so that we remember why we're kind of following this character you don't get that in staying alive i mean he's just he he, you get him auditioning and trying out but you never get to see like him cut loose and just be awesome until that end scene and you're just like this is more embarrassing than awesome i mean him and that like weirdy loincloth and the little headband stuff it's just like what is this this is horrible
1: and you're a big musical fan so the the only thing i can think of in relation to the story with this and i've never seen it so i'm just going on what i've heard or what i what people have told me is that maybe it's like a chorus line because it's all like backstage drama
4: yeah i've never seen a chorus line but yeah that's what i understand it is yeah. as well is seeing the making of, of a musical
1: yeah which like i said it's these it's these insufferable dance auditions he goes out for these things and he's you know, dancing, but it's not—it's not the dancing that you got in Saturday Night Fever. It's a much more, you know, choreographed uh, like a musical. You know, it's just real simple. I mean, it's like if you've seen a musical and you've seen a member of the dance company or whatever, the chorus or whatever that's in the musical—that's what you're getting. How exciting is that? does it seemed to be all that exciting.
4: You can make it exciting. I mean, you can make this stuff compelling, but it just – it wasn't that way. I mean, you know, I watch um, So You Think You Can Dance, and I watch it from the beginning of the season every year because I love the whole idea, the tryouts and the drama and all this kind of stuff. I've seen fame. You know, we talked about Bobby C., that actor being in fame, you know, so you get to see that kind of, you know, the dance school and all that kind of stuff, but this – it just – didn't hold my interest and i didn't care what they were doing either in the theater or outside the theater and you know it's like when i even um like to go back to the music thing again looking at the soundtrack i see like a half you know this was a single album as opposed to a double album and one half of the album is the Bee Gees. I don't remember the Bee Gees songs in this movie at all. I just no. remember the second half of the soundtrack, which is all fucking Frank Stallone songs. And it's just like every fucking song, you know, far from over, f- look out for number one, finding out the hard way, all this stuff. And it's just like, holy shit, this is all, this is just a vehicle for Frank fucking Stallone.
1: There's only one Bee Gees song that I can think of. That's oh, in this God. Film. And it comes at the very end. And what the it worst. is, and, and what it is, is that he's, Kicked ass in this big, you know, musical, and he goes the door at the end.
7: What
2: I want to do? You know what I want to do? You know do?
1: Strut. So he like opens the door and he like redoes uh, through Times Square, you know, in the theater district, the opening of Saturday Night Fever to stay in alive.
4: Just embarrassing.
1: And the 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 one thing that I can see. That this film was actually an inspiration for, and, and, and you, may, you may agree with me on this, is at several times in the film, and it may even just be the opening credits, is the song and the way it's cut reminded me of the South Park montage Cause you gotta have a montage, all that, you know, like you got working hard, you're doing all this stuff, you know, <laughs> they, they put that on the show. And then also in, uh, in team America and it almost seemed like maybe they saw this movie and that's where they got that idea from. Cause it, it sounds like it, it Oh <laughs> like, yeah. that's what they're really making fun of is, and maybe this is where that, you know, stupid joke about the eighties montage comes from.
4: Oh yeah, (laughs) when he says strut and I know that Stallone was probably just like this is where the audience is going to stand up and cheer this is the callback to the first movie you know but oh yeah just so embarrassing man it was just (laughs) it hurt you know and what I hate is that that song is so good that I'm just like yeah I love this song when it finally comes on because they just have given you this shitty music through so much of this and it's just like oh and then finally that song comes on i'm like all right yeah this was one of the most successful films of 1983 1984 like people talk about how 1984 was the golden you know year when it came to the 80s and you got you know ghostbusters and all this shit not to say that ghostbusters is shit just going on the record but this was uh, one of the top grossers of 83 and it's just amazing because now it just People look back at this as one of the worst sequels ever, and I won't say that it's one of the worst sequels ever. I've seen Highlander 2, The Quickening, but this is pretty bad, especially talking about how great the first film is, all these juicy roles for actors and how you know so compelling it is. And you have this character that you shouldn't like, but you follow this guy around. Great, great stuff. And then you get to this, and it's just like, why am I spending an hour and a half with this Tony Monero? I really don't care about this guy. I mean, it's Travolta, so he's compelling. He's got the charisma and everything. But I just, you know, it's tough, man. Like like Mark was saying, I have started this movie a ton of times. I've only made it through once. I couldn't even rewatch this one for the podcast. You know, (laughs) it was just
3: too tough.
1: Well, you sent it to me. The file didn't work. And you said, well, just watch 54. Don't 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 worry about it. If you don't have time to watch Staying Alive, it's okay. So I told you, well, I've got time, and I want to watch it. So you found another file, and you sent it to me. And I watched it. <laughs> oh, man. I I never did need to see this one again.
4: No, no. Th- I, I don't think anybody really needs to ever check this movie out. Just... Stay away. And, and stay away and stay alive. That's all i got to say. It almost feels like 54 is much more of a sequel to Saturday Night Fever than staying alive. is. Mark, tell us about how did 54 come about?
5: Well, first of all, that's a huge compliment. <laughs>
4: well, good, good. I'm glad you take it that way.
5: <laughs> yeah, that, that's an, an enormous compliment. But, you know, really, how did 54 come about? A, a, a couple of ways. I think in my head, I thought... I want to make a nostalgia movie. I was in graduate school and I thought, I want to make a nostalgia movie about the disco in the seventies. And I thought, Hmm, 15 years later, I'm going to do sort of like an American graffiti for the disco era. And then one of my teachers was, was the filmmaker Paul Schrader, who was part of that second golden age of Hollywood and is still working. And he said, I think you should set it at studio 54. And that is is what totally got this thing going. Because to me, Studio 54, you know, growing up in the middle of nowhere, was this legend that I think we all know about, whether you grew up in Detroit, or an Iowa farm, or Malibu, or in Saudi Arabia, you knew what Studio 54 was. And it was so that's where it really started going. And then what I realized quickly was, you know, my way into it was through the kids who worked there, because I waited a lot of tables as a college student, and I loved that kind of family dynamic that's created. And so at the time when I was writing the script and and it got off the ground, it was the the world was ripe for a Studio 54 movie, and there were probably fifteen other scripts out there, many of them with huge directors attached to them or huge writers had written them. But my, I think mine was the one that got made because it was about the hoy Poloy, you know, it was about the 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 every the everyman, you know, sort of like you were talking about uh, how um, how we were talking about uh, Saturday Night Fever being a, a uh, about working class folks. So that was an entree into disco in the same way it being about Shane O'Shea, working class kid from New Jersey and his working class, you know, uh, friends, the bartender, coach girl and bus boy, that it's about the worker bees. So you meet the fabulous and rich people, but they're on the periphery. It's really about the kids who worked there and that working class thing. So in that way, I think, I owe uh, that film, owes, my film owes a lot to, to uh, Saturday Night Fever. because yeah, Last Days
4: of Disco came out the same year, right? Cur, cur, yeah, right about the same time, yep. Okay. I still haven't seen that one. I mean, because as soon as I read that it was a Wood Stillman film, I was like, no, (laughs) no, thanks. (laughs) Apologies to Mr. Stillman. But, um, you know, I saw, I sat through Metropolitan. I think I hacked through half of Barcelona and just, he's one of the most bloodless filmmakers to me. So (laughs) I just didn't do it. But I will tell you, Mark, that I saw 54. We, uh, it was, I was working at a uh, web design company and a whole troop of us went down the street we were in Birmingham Michigan we went down to the Birmingham theater uh this is before the this is still the Birmingham 8 just so, just so rob can get kind a of picture of this in his head and uh we all sat there and we watched 54 and so it was a really nice afternoon we took off the afternoon from work and went to see 54 so it was a really nice time and um, it was like sh- <laughs> yeah yeah and it was shortly thereafter That I remember hearing, um, you know, I was really into tape trading and all this kind of stuff. And it was shortly thereafter that a uh, 54 work print uh, hit my radar and that it was so different from the version that was released Now, I've read that the DVD kind of talking about Saturday Night Fever and how Saturday Night Fever, the DVD, is different than what we see normally or the AMC cut or all this kind of stuff. The DVD of uh, 54 is different than the version that I saw when I saw it at theaters. And then there's another version that's still out there.
5: Well, so there are many versions of this movie because the studio cut it so much that they realized they made a mistake after they released it and they started adding things back. So you have, first of all, the, the movie, I think the VHS version is the movie. Then I think the DVD might have a little more. Then the French version has a little more. Then there's something called the extended cut, which is really just like three or four years old. But it's still that same um, story. It's still that same sort of, um, you know, almost to me, it's kind of a music video, almost the way they cut it. It was reshot to be about the Ryan Philippi character and the Nev Campbell character instead of what the movie originally was about, which was the uh, Ryan Philippi, Breckenmeyer, and, and Selma Hayek characters. That's what the that's what the original movie is, and that's the movie that's about to premiere at Berlin. So it, it it isn't just a director's cut in that, you know, there are a few scenes that are different, a few scenes added back. It's actually almost a third different. So it's Oh, I think something like 37 minutes of footage. You know, we cut back out the reshoots um, and restored the movie, which was this very complicated process technically as well. Restoring a 17 year old movie from a library that's changed hands three times. And now you have. I think the movie comes in at 106 minutes total, but um, I don't think we have any any of the reshoots in it whatsoever. And you know, we've got almost 40 minutes back of the original story. So my producer of the original movie actually likes to refer to my cut, the movie that's finally going to come out, as 54, and the studio cut that came out, you know, in 1998 as 55.
4: How did you get this opportunity to go back and recut this after all these years?
5: persistence and tenacity and a man named jonathan king who is the producer of this of the director's cut with me and he you know at every opportunity he would talk to people at miramax you know especially every time the the library changed hands and he found a sympathetic ear in zan Devine, who is the head of um, miramax now and she thought it was a fabulous idea and she said yes and so, you know, we got our tiny budget. We thought we can make it work, and we have made it work. Little did we know, finding the footage that had been spread out all over the world and finding the negative, who knew that my post-production supervisor would be crawling around 90-degree warehouses and finding our dailies on a pallet that was wow. marked to be destroyed.
4: Oh, <laughs> oh the- man. Wow. Had
5: she not found them, like, literally that day, there would be no director's cut.
4: Wow. You you yeah. snatched this out of the fire, like, literally.
3: <laughs>
5: Nancy Valley, the goddess, snatched this out of the fire by crawling on her hands and knees through a dusty warehouse and the grapevine.
1: So after the shows in Berlin, are there plans to put out your version to some sort of format so folks like us get a chance to see it?
5: Oh, absolutely, yes. Yeah. So what will happen is we'll have a few more screenings, and it will also, and then it will, um, you know, be available on VOD and iTunes, et cetera, eventually, probably later in the spring. Um, but it will continue to play at festivals also. So hopefully, you know, if, I don't know if there's a, a festival in Detroit that would be interested, but we have a company called Park Circus who is um, taking care of that aspect of it. And that's what's really exciting about this, that, that finally I get to go out with this movie to the film festivals and present it to people and have it also accessible to people online and in various other formats.
1: Well, I'm glad you're around to do it, and this isn't sort of a, you know, this is what we thought Orson would have liked for Touch of Evil. You actually had the chance to put it together yourself.
5: Thank you, you know, and that's what's so interesting is, you know, most director's cuts like this only happen with very famous movies or very famous directors like Orson Welles. So the fact that I have this opportunity, you know, the, the movie's not that famous, and I'm certainly not famous. So it's, it's really a special situation, and I feel incredibly lucky and incredibly grateful to the new Miramax.
4: I have a hard time believing that this was your first film. Your first feature film was this, to me, was a big deal, you know, taking the afternoon off and going to see it at work and everything. And just the cast that you had in here, you mentioned, you know, Ryan Felipe and Selma Hayek, Nev Campbell, you know, just so, Meyer. some great names in here. This is the first time that I remember seeing Mark Ruffalo in something. It was just like, how were you able to pull this thing off as such a young filmmaker?
5: Well, see, this is what's interesting. This was the time of the queer new wave. And I was part of that queer new wave in the early 90s, because I'd made short films in graduate school, and they did incredibly well. And they touched nerves. And so I had sort of a festival career already because of these short films. One's called The Dead Boys Club, and the other is called Alkali, Iowa. And they you know, Miramax was very aware of these movies and, you know, they were very after work, you know, they were very interested in working with young filmmakers and until, and, and in my telling of this, um, my version of, uh, of studio 54, how I wanted to tell my story. Um, and then, you know, I was just a gutsy little thing who fought for a year for the cast I got. I mean, they were throwing people at me for, for the Mike Myers role, that you would not even believe, or for the Salma Hayek role, she's a Latina, right? They were throwing all these blonde girls at me, and I, I just dug in my heels on my cast every step of the way, and after a year of you know some fairly intense discussions, I, I felt like I had this wonderful cast, and then what happened while we were shooting was my cast started getting really famous. So Ryan came out with, um, I know what you did last summer. Um, and I remember we had to shoot in Toronto a lot. Uh, we built the club in Toronto and we shot up there. And I remember once waking up in Toronto to my clock radio and it was Ryan screaming <laughs> on a commercial for, I know what you did last summer. <laughs> I like, jumped out of bed, Ryan screaming, wait, what, um, and so um also mike had you know had a lot of success on saturday night um live and with you know his first couple of movies but the real sensation for mike was when um austin powers was released on either VHS or DVD and became this huge sensation. So he was getting bigger. Nev had Scream 2 or 3 coming out. Um, Salma had something. And, you know, as a, you know, this was Mark's first role. I found him in a play. It's not his first role in a movie, but his first role in a big movie. And he, I found him in a play in the small theater in New York. And um, so it's just like the cast just started becoming huge while we were shooting which really made miramax so excited about the movie but then wanted to turn it into something else instead of the dark fucked up saturday night fever type of movie that it started out to be
1: like you said just that cast is great and mike myers in here is so good as Steve Rebell, I mean, I've seen him in other things, and I've seen him in in dramas and stuff. But sometimes there's sort of this, I'm Mike Myers playing this guy kind of thing. You kind of get this secondary kind of thing with him sometimes. But in here, it's like he's in it. It's he's just so good and so dead on.
5: Yeah, I, I'm thrilled with his performance. I think he he and I are both really happy with it. And um, you know, I really I always want to do rehearsal. Even if I get him for a day with Mike, I had him for three weeks and he came in. He said, I got to tell you, I'm going to be just awful at the beginning. But believe me, by the time I'm on set, I'm going to be good. Just trust me. And he was absolutely right. And a lot of our rehearsal time was just spent just talking about the character and talking about the times, but we did, you know, all, all all sorts of things. And then when he got his prosthetics, it really turned him into this character. And the interesting thing about casting him, this was funny, we were really getting close to making this movie, but but we still didn't have the Steve Rubelt character cast, and it was the plum role in the movie. So we knew we could get a movie star. But, you know, I wanted the right one. So we did not send the script to Mike, but Mike got it somehow and approached us. And Miramax was thinking, oh, Mark will never say yes to him. And I immediately said yes, because there is a there is a, um, a a tragic uh, aspect to this character of Steve Rubell, And yet he's funny. And I knew, you know, I, we know this from many Com- comedians, there's a real there, a lot of their comedy comes from this tragic place, and so I just somehow instinctually knew Mike would be great. I did a little more homework, watched more of his stuff, and you know, by, by the time we met, we both knew it was sort of a fait accompli. So if, if we didn't bite each other's heads off, it was gonna work, and it did. So I'm very, very pleased with that, and thank you for, for mentioning.
4: Yeah, when he showed up in Inglorious Bastards, I kept waiting for him to, like, you know, oh, behave kind of thing. But <laughs> seeing him again in 54, uh, it was just like, oh, wow, yeah, I forgot he was even in this. Because he just – he plays that role so perfectly, and you uh, you do forget that it's Mike Meyer. You don't expect him to come out with that kind of shtick or anything. He just is that character, so great. And the prosthetics help and everything, but he just, you know, is – Playing that character 100%, it doesn't feel like there's another person in there. It just feels like Rubel the entire time. It's the same kind of era,
1: and it reminded me of the performance in a way of when Burt Reynolds was in Boogie Nights. That you have this guy who has this, you know, this this behind him. You know what I mean? Like people expect a certain thing, and then he shows up, and it just you're like, wow, you know. And that's really what it did for me.
5: Mike was really on the road to getting an Oscar nomination here. In fact, the the Miramax publicity machine was already making that happen. And before the film got cut, he was nominated for a New York uh, Film Critics Circle Award for Best Supporting Actor. So, man, it was happening. And then when when the New York Film Critics saw the cut version, they pulled the nomination. (laughs) (laughs) It was so heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah, that movie. Yeah, 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 yeah.
4: Did you need to go back and like loop anything, or or recontact any of the people that were in this originally, or are you able to do this completely kind of um, with the original elements that you
5: have? One person, one very important person, Ryan, who, by the way, is just a wonderful, wonderful person. I love this guy very much. Um, It was his first lead and my first feature, you know, um, as you guys mentioned. And so I think we have that sort of bonding experience. You know, I think that happens between a first-time director and a first lead actor thing. And um, so after not being in touch with him, maybe running into him at parties here and there over the years, I hadn't been in touch with him for a couple of years. And I wanted to rewrite the voiceover. Uh, so in, in 55, there's this long voiceover that goes throughout it. I did not write it. I did not like it. But I still wanted a, a beginning voiceover, right, um, to take us to, to kind of take us back into 1979. So I rewrote it. And it's just, you know, at the the top of the movie. And what I realized was this is a little bit of a tiny, tiny little bit of cinema history. I don't think this has happened before. You guys can probably correct me or one of your listeners can. But I don't think ever before has an actor been able to look back 20 years, literally, when they do their voiceover. So Ryan redid the voiceover as a 40-year-old man looking back on what it was like to be 19. And it's kind of amazing. It's a little bit like boyhood, that there's this weird sense of reality. And it's not like you're going to notice it in, in the writing or in, in what what he's saying, But when I I talked to Ryan about that, when we were redoing the voiceover, it's like the whole cadence of his voice changed and all. And it's like this is an amazing opportunity for me and for an actor, and I think hopefully for an audience, to have a real 40-year-old look back 20 years.
4: (laughs) No, that's remarkable. That's like – getting um will wheaton to uh do richard dreyfus's lines and stand by me or something you know just go back and and do the voiceover of him looking at his youth you know
5: right. that would be amazing right 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 exactly exactly Yep. i think there are prob- there there is a certain amount of an- anticipation for this cut and i think you know one thing um i think people might think they're going to see this amazing, hedonistic, sexy, violent, um, drug-addled movie. Well, the the, the truth of the matter is, um, there is, yes, it's much sexier and there's drug use and whatnot, and yes, you should come and see that. But it's also, in a way, a quieter movie and a more melancholy movie. And, and, and it, it shares that melancholy with Saturday Night Fever, I think. I hope people will find. Just, you know, setting expectations sort of in that place because, you know, when things get cut, I think people often start to wonder what was there. And had you seen it in 1998, it would have been much edgier. Now it seems like something you would see. It was like it was a little ahead of its time. Now it won't push the envelope but it is sort of in the envelope of this time right now and so that's why i think what why miramax decided to release it now also because they felt like ah now's the time for this because these sort of anti-heroes like tony Monero, like the ryan philippi character in the original cut like now we can watch these sort of imperfect characters you know we 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 like you know imperfect characters flawed characters And I think that's probably one of the biggest reasons it's finally getting released.
4: All right, we are going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show.
1: We're back next week with a discussion on Frederico Fellini's Juliet of the Spirits, and we'll be joined by our good friend Jim Tuszynski. But before we go, I want to thank this week's special guest co-host, Mark Christopher. And as you said, we're very excited that uh, your version of 54 is coming out soon. And Mark, where can people go to find out more information about what you're up to if they're interested in also these screenings? Well, first of
5: all, thank you very much for having me on the show. It's been a pleasure. Well, so the film is premiering at Berlin on February 10th. Afterwards, we'll be having other screenings both in the U.S. and abroad. And at, I don't have a release date yet on VOD and iTunes, etc., but it should be later in the spring. So I think good old Google is where we find out right now um, because, as I said, um, Miramax has not landed on the, on the release date yet.
1: You said that there's a company. Is it Miramax is putting it out and this other company is assisting? Is there a website or anywhere to learn anything more about them? Oh, yes. Thank you very much. Yes, they're called
5: Park Circus. And if you Google Park Circus, you can get a hold of them there. Jack Bell is, in, is the lead person on this project at Park Circus, but they, they, are, um, they are taking charge of the festival aspect of it.
4: Well, very cool. We'll keep up with um, the release dates and everything and post those over at our Facebook group and make sure that uh, folks know that if it's coming to their town, that they will be able to see this or when it hits VOD, iTunes, all that kind of fun stuff. We'll have those links available, too. And uh, yeah, go ahead. Sign up for our Facebook group over at our website projection-booth.com so thank you everyone for listening to another episode of the projection booth we hope you'll do us a solid go over to itunes and give us a nice review give us some stars you know we'll appreciate it now gentlemen it is time to strut
1: Finally, the number one selling doll this Christmas is Tickle Me Elmo.
8: And the least popular selling doll, you guessed it, Tickle Me Frank Stallone.
4: If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes. Leave a comment and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media. By clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net and thank you for listening.
3: Christopher Media, let's make some noise.